This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about money, boys! Here we go again. I will start my operations here and pull the rebels apart piece by piece. They will be the architects of their own distraction. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one animated TV season at a time. Uh, I am not Gabe Green, I am James Hamrick, but as you heard from that opening quote, I am still joined by my co-host, uh, co Gabe Green. How are you, man? Uh, pretty good. Feels very strange and kind of wrong not to be reading that, but uh, you did a good job. Uh, it feels strange reading it. No, I, I don't understand. I don't. I guess before I didn't really realize the pressures of of starting it. <laughs> All right, we'll get out of here. <laughs> um, so yes, we are a show that talks about uh, film franchises, and we are currently in the Star Wars saga, and we are currently on Star Wars Rebels, and we are doing season three. Before we get into discussion on that, I'd ask you guys if you enjoy the show to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. And uh, just a few behind the scenes. Uh, Things I want to mention before we dive right into the review. The first is that uh, for this season, Dave Filoni stepped down as supervising director and was re replaced by Justin Ridge. And from what I, what I hear, that was just so he could focus more on the actual uh, you know, storytelling. Uh, he has a couple writing and directing credits this season, but next season, on season four, he did a lot of writing and a lot of directing. So I'm assuming he, he uh, stepped down so he could focus more on crafting season four, which is cool with me. And another big uh, development in the Star Wars mythos was that this uh, this se season introduced the new Disney canon to Thrawn, who was a, a much beloved uh, character from the Expanded Universe, which is now Legends. Uh, he first appeared in Timothy Zahn's 1991 novel, Heir to the Empire, which uh, was the first chapter in a very acclaimed, the very acclaimed uh, Thrawn trilogy. In the old canon, he was an admiral that, I guess, rose in the ranks and took over what was left of the Empire after the Battle of Endor. However, in new canon, he's a basically a foreign alien that came in and rose up through the ranks uh, before the Battle of Yavin. I haven't read any of the original Thrawn trilogy, but uh, from what I can tell, the characterization is still very much the same. You know, very kind of quiet, focused, uh, Sherlock Holmes-like character. Yeah, it does seem like any time... The uh, the EU is brought up. It seems like people instantly just go to uh, go to Thrawn for like a, the justification of it. And I haven't read any of the EU. Well, much of it. I've I've read a bit, but um, it does seem like you know in conversations where where it's debated as to whether Disney made the right move with you know with turning them all into legends and revamping. Uh, the argument against that is that we, we lose pretty much Thrawn and, you know, that's right where they go to. And, and we lose not not just the character, but also just the the great writing contributions from Zahn himself with that trilogy. Um, so yeah, I, I would be interested in going back after having watched the show. And hopefully I, I plan on reading the new Disney novels by uh, by Zahn here in a little bit. Then I'd love to go back and see where he came from. So uh, a month after season three was was uh, finished, Zahn released the novel Thrawn in April of 2017, which reworked the character back into the Disney canon and gave us his uh, his new canon origin. And there was also a sequel, Thrawn Alliance, was released in July of this year. I have read both. I really like Thrawn. I wasn't a huge fan of Alliances, but I, I really like just 
the character the way Zahn writes him. So to get started with the the season itself, uh, it started off with a two part episode, Steps into Shadow. This was directed by Bosco Ng, Mel Zwire, and Justin Ridge, and it was written by Stephen Melching and Matt Mishnovitz. Um, and to summarize it real quick, uh, led by Ezra, the rebels successfully rescue and imprison Hondo Onaka in exchange for valuable intel. Learning of old Y-wing bombers being dismantled for scrap, Ezra leads the rebellion to claim. Uh, sorry, Ezra leads the rebels to claim them for the rebellion. The newly introduced Grand Admiral Thrawn deduces the reason for Hondo's escape and deploys troops to engage them on the planet. Ezra is able to successfully recover several bombers, but must cut the power to the station, leaving Ezra on it as it falls apart. Concurrently, Kanan meets a strange new creature called the Bendu, who teaches him lessons on the Force and how to see. Kanan senses that Ezra needs him and leaves with Hera aboard the Ghost and rescues Ezra. Um, so right off the the uh, right on the start, um, I like how dark Ezra is getting in this. Uh, it seems like pretty much all the Padawans we've seen, they've always had the phase where they kind of go go dark. And I like how it's shown here, um, it's where we have Kanan was obviously blinded in uh, the the finale for last uh, last season, and he seems to be kind of depressed and isolating himself into um just in meditation he's kind of just got a full beard now in this really cold mask but he's basically isolating himself and so ezra is now turning to the the sith holocron that he took from from the temple on malachor for his training and it's uh teaching him some rather nasty things like as they're escaping they get surrounded and then he takes over the uh pilot of uh atst walker and has it turn on the uh the stormtroopers around him and it's really dark sequence because we see it from the perspective of the stormtroopers on the ground as the the you know the gun turns around and just starts shooting his own men and then he, ezra has to just walk right off the edge and kill himself and i like the uh when sabine has him you know when did kanan teach you that and he's like he didn't and he's got this super dark look in his eyes and of course we uh we get hondo as well who you know it's hondo he's always he's always the best and i love how the crew obviously still does not like him as ezra didn't tell them who they're rescuing so of course as soon as they meet him everyone just wants to throw him right back in jail because of what the six or seven times he's betrayed them previously any season that begins with uh with hondo and naturally uh his his introduction is is pretty great but to go back uh, as much as it hurts me to not just instantly start talking about Hondo, I do want to talk about that opening sequence though, with with Ezra controlling the uh, the the stormtroopers and the walker, and it kind of made me think about uh, your comment about how I think it was in season one or two, I forget where. Um, oh, it, I think it's season two where Kanan is pulling the stormtroopers out for uh, for Rex to shoot them. <laughs> And that you know, it, it goes to show how how much just tone and the way a scene is directed, how much that affects. Because both scenes are them kind of using the force to just kill these stormtroopers in unconventional ways. But the way the scene is directed, with the music and like you said, um, watching the scene from the point of view of the stormtroopers and and just listening to them scream, like and you know, be confused. And then you've got that that great shot of Ezra stepping forward. And then cutting to the walker stepping forward. And then, you know, the aftermath of it where you, you have the great line, the callback to the prequels with Zeb telling Hera what uh, Ezra did. And he's just like, you know, pretty, pretty wizard, eh? Uh, 
but you know, just just the way it's responded to by his companions and and the face of Ezra and the music, it's it's really a dark way to uh, to start off the season, especially considering it was it's kind of lighthearted before <laughs> with with a little Ugnot running out and getting blasted off the bridge and and just so funny. Hot. I mean, it, <laughs> you know, it's it, that's you know, it just, like I said, it goes to show how much how how much tone and and portrayal is a factor where where you can have this guy getting blasted off a bridge and falling to his death kind of humorous especially if it's coming immediately after honda's always charming introduction um but yeah the way it's shot it's it's really kind of a a darker unsettling scene but but really well told and then obviously this episode is where we are introduced to a one thrawn and he is voiced by lars mickelson who is the older brother of mads mickelson who played uh, who played Galen Erso in uh, Rogue One, and he's Lars is probably best known as play, for playing uh, Charles Augustus Magnuson in the the BBC Sherlock. Um, but he is just great here. Um, he voices Thrawn with a, a very quiet, uh, subdued monotone, but through it he's able to just you know infuse the character with just so much intelligence and cunning and. Just, I love the way he kind of casually respects the, the the rebels, and there's just it feels like there's always whenever you feel like you get Thrawn, there's another layer layer revealed. And a lot of that's in, obviously in the writing, but I think Lars uh, Mikkelsen brings a lot to the uh, performance as well. It's amazing what all he's able to do with the character, with the the style of speaking he chose, where it is very low. I mean. Um... I had to like just turn my TV up much less than I usually would because of how quiet he is. But, but I'm I'm glad that he he went this way because despite the fact that it is almost kind of this this monotone, you still get a lot of character and a lot of personality through it. Yeah, just a very imposing figure that even when he never shows up in an episode, it's like his presence is always there, and the characters know they should be scared of him. It's kind of like. You know, the idea you get with a Vader or even the Emperor where even when they're not on screen, they're almost synonymous with whatever tangible threat we have in front of us. You know, it's you know, to be in, in Empire Strikes Back, just because of the opening crawl saying, you know, it's Vader who's who's looking for him. We feel him behind the oppression of the attack on Hoth, uh, even before he shows up. And here with Thrawn, it's the same thing, you know, considering now he has all the people that we kind of already know, like Constantine. We've already seen them, but now every time they make actions, they're making them on behalf of Thrawn. So, so he's always kind of hovering over everything. Yeah, and every time the rebels win, it's because Thrawn let them just about. <laughs> but yeah, uh, going to another new character we are introduced to in this episode is the Bendu, who is this giant bear moose thing who um who has the Force and a lot of it. One really cool callback to old Star Wars lore is that he's he's called the Bendu, and the original name that um that Lucas had for the Jedi was the Jedi Bendu. The, that that name doesn't appear anywhere else in Star Wars, as far as I'm aware. So I'm not sure if it has any real significance being given to this character, or if it's simply just a cool callback. But what's most most fascinating about him is that he sits between the light and the dark because he says the jedi and the sith will the ashla and the bogan the light and the dark i am the one in the middle the bendu and which is pretty cool we uh back in season uh, two the the lasats called the light side of the or their version of the force the ashla so that's a cool uh, connection to that but apparently the dark is the bogan 
And also when uh, when Kanan says is comes to the bo- the uh, the Bandu and is worried about Ezra, he's worried that Ezra has the uh, Sith holocron and is learning from it, and he's just he's scared that will turn Ezra to the dark side. And uh, the Bendu says, an object cannot make you good or evil. The temptation of power, forbidden knowledge, even the desire to do good can lead you some, lead some down that path. So what we we seem to be ha- having with this character who doesn't abide by light or dark, but uses both. And here saying that it's it's not like the, the, the Sith holocron, this this piece of tech or, what, or magic, or whatever that is powered by dark by the dark side of the force that will not make you bad like that will not turn you to evil what will turn you to evil is that desire for power you know forbidden knowledge it's it's more what what i'm seeing is it seems to be going down the dark side with the with the belief in your head that the dark side is evil is what turns you to evil like these jedi are raised up with with you know this constant refrain of you cannot go to the dark. Dark is dark is evil. Light is good. If you go to the dark, that means you are evil and you are a Sith. So, if any one of them goes to the dark side, it is a conscious choice on their their part to embrace what they believe is evil, which would be an evil choice on their part. So, but it, se- it seems to be that they are tr- with with this show and with the other, I think, bits and pieces in the Last Jedi. They are moving away from this strict dichotomy of light, good, dark, evil into balance. And this is something that has always been inconsistent in Star Wars. You, I mean, you have that way back in Empire Strikes Back insinuations that the Jedi weren't all good and they have problems and issues the way they lie to Luke and the way Luke pro- eventually proves them wrong by saving Vader. And all throughout the prequels, we realized the Jedi were incredibly corrupt and had a lot of problematic um notions especially the rejection of friendship and the rejection of family and love and human attachment and so now we have here a creature that is you know neither good nor bad but is it i mean he's more more good than bad but he's a little wild that who can use the both light and the dark without harming himself which i kind of for me at least means that the dark isn't automatically evil. Um, and th- that seemed to be something that Lucas was going for. He never actually came out and said it. Like, they, that's something I never understood. Like, I still don't understand what Lucas meant when he talked about bringing balance to the Force. Because it, it, it was always, balance was always framed in the Jedi winning and the Sith losing. Um, so I wonder if with Lucasfilm now under Disney and with Pablo Hidalgo and all the, and these people, they're trying to push towards a, a true balance between light and dark, you know, not being ruled by ambition and emotion, but also not becoming a cold pragmatist like the Jedi who were devoted to the light side were. I don't know. I've been rambling. What do you think? Yeah. You know, well, we could, you know, this is an entire probably episode episodes worth of discussion here, but you know, I, I always thought that one of the, one of the really hard things about, what Lucas did, uh, you know, it's it's something that served the series incredibly well over the years. Is is him borrowing from all of these different like styles of storytelling, you know, with with very Western good versus evil, and, and you know the Eastern storytelling about like yin and yang and balance and um, things like that, and bringing it all and you know embracing and enrolling it all into one one big series. Um, I think 
one of the hard things and evolving as it went that yeah exactly you know that was i think we've talked about that before here but this is kind of you know a living series and and because you know prequels are so common here you you are able to go back and and even you know retro retroactively make something mean something else but uh but i think you know initially because you know the the idea of balance came from the prequels i think initially with the original trilogy um it was kind of framed as good versus evil being synonymous with light versus dark you know yoda has the comment you know if follow the dark or if if you're if lured by the dark side you are forever consume your path it will or, or something forever, to that forever it will consume your destiny yeah um, but that's proved wrong by vader being redeemed yeah so i'm i'm not sure though if if we're meant to initially i think we probably are but this may have been one of those retroactively things because i'm not sure if we're meant to not believe yoda when he says that at first and so i I, th- I think that that was just one of the hard things to do was to try, especially whenever he introduces the concept of, of balancing the force, was trying to not equate light with good and dark with bad, uh, despite the fact that, you know, you have these two different styles of storytelling merging together. And, and you know, th- I, I think if I could ask Lucas anything, it would be, you know, what does it mean to bring balance uh, to the force, does that truly mean that darkness must equal light? Despite the fact that it does seem like, like you said, balance has almost always been framed to us as as the the light overcoming the darkness. Um, and so I would wonder what what his answer to that would be. But like you said, with this new storytelling group, which I don't think actually has veered off from what Lucas was always intending, uh, but it does seem like they're making a, a, a concentrated effort on, I guess, um, harmonizing um, the idea of good versus evil with the idea of balancing the dark and the light um, between this with the Bendu and, you know, Luke's lessons on Octu about a powerful dark and powerful light and the necessity of, of you know, their equalness. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's cool to, to see that start here and to know that that idea of, of actual balance and of the fact that there's, it's, possible to appreciate as as palpatine said you know all aspects of the force um Mm -hmm. and to know that that idea isn't just isolated solely to the to the series but they're bringing it into the movies and it really makes me curious and excited to see what they really do have planned with for the force like when this this phase is done and i guess they concentrate on on the new part of the series and that's kind of the beautiful thing about how slowly the series has evolved is that each like each step was made in a way that was consistent with the previous ones. Like it doesn't dis- it doesn't mean that if we later on find out that yes indeed we do have balance, light and dark can coexist. That doesn't mean it's inconsistent with the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and A New Hope. It just means that those were they were kind of unreliable narrators at the time. They they were operating off their knowledge, and since he has indeed shown through the prequels that the Jedi were indeed not entirely reliable and not entirely trustworthy on every single thing, it gives the it gives the developing story a freedom to morph and change and evolve into something more, because we have we have the characters like they they are speaking the truth as they understood it at the time. And they, they were if they were incorrect, that's fine. You know, we we are already we already understand that they could have been in, incorrect. So I like how it can it the way he framed this world, it can evolve and it can change without ever becoming inconsistent with itself. 
Yeah, I like that way of putting it, you know, and, and seeing, you know, now that we've seen Yoda in the series in season two, like physically, and it, it definitely seems like that Yoda is carrying some of the, the knowledge uh, he took from the Clone Wars and has definitely grown as a character. Uh, he he did go into exile after that. And so he he wasn't there to fully grasp all of the problems of the Order Um and I'm, I'm sure, you know, he learned a lot in meditation with the Force. But just being himself, you can kind of assume that maybe some of the residue of of, uh, of what was wrong with the Order might still be with him, such as that cold pragmatism with, with him, you know, telling him he must kill his father and things like that. And, and so, yeah, if you look at it in retrospect, these are all characters across all of the established canon, like, consistently learning with us, the audience, more and more about the Force. Um. So going back to the episode, I love that the reclamation station is uh, is uh, commanded by Commander Brom Titus instead of uh, Admiral Titus as he was back in uh, season one or two when he was the commander of the Interdictor. This kind of funny world building. He was obviously demoted when it was destroyed, but I love how it, it's never actually called out who he was before it. It's just kind of, it's just kind of there. Yeah, and you've got that line from Ezra before he leaves. Or either before he leaves or, or when he first sees him again, and he just says, you know, get ready for another demotion. <laughs> you know, just assuming that we remember the episode, which is easy because of the, the design of um, of the uh, going blank on his name, even though you just Titus. said it. Titus. Uh, but yeah, I love little callbacks like that. Um, so they were originally only supposed to go there for reconnaissance, but as we saw, they were destroying the, the Y-Wing, so he ordered an attack. And he's just being an incredibly impulsive idiot, very similar to the way... Uh, Ahsoka was in Lightsaber Lost, where he's just pushing his people too far, way farther than the resources can allow, and eventually they're like they're, a lot of they're stranded and surrounded. Thrawn comes in, the the station starts crashing out of the sky, and he's trapped on there. And I just I love how thoroughly this episode beats him down, and allows there to be consequences for his stupidity and his 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 wrong choices rather than just kind of. Because so one of my issues with this show is so much of the victories seem little like little more than luck, and I like when the brashness kind of catches up with them. Yeah, it definitely reminded me of of that arc with Ahsoka, where you know at that time it did seem like she you know she wasn't awful. Uh, I don't think she was even awful at first, although I, she definitely had to grow on me. Um, but you know after just kind of being this cutesy new character who who's kind of abrasive and, and sometimes a bit bratty, to see her actually have to reckon with consequences, uh, I think it did a lot for the character. Um, and I think it did some similar things here with Ezra, you know, who has kind of just flown by the seat of his pants and done done whatever he wants and, and has improvised and often has been rewarded for that improvisation. Um, and so to see him here kind of acting on impulse and then not getting that lucky break... Um, and being forced to deal with uh, with his actions, I, th I think that that's almost always a good thing for characters to experience. Yeah, and from a visual perspective, just the image of the reclamation station falling through the clouds and this, this huge lightning storm, and the ghost kind of coming down trying to keep up speed with it's really well directed and very gorgeous to look at. And we uh, we also lose the uh, Phantom One, which was actually surprisingly emotional for me. Yeah, it's a cool vehicle. Uh, it, it's crazy about that uh, the animation here, you know, because so often some of the textures on this show can tend to be a bit flat, um, 
but it, it seems like, you know, whenever they whenever they really go for spectacle, they put a lot of time and effort into it. You know, it, it reminds me of uh, the gravity well scene from season two where they they pull in the all the other surrounding star destroyers and you've got that gorgeous explosion where it just kind of collapses in on itself and and then here they love their explosions in this show they, and they make them look good i would love explosions too if i could make them look like that and so to hear you you actually see like debris flying around and, and the, the particle effects are, are really nice and and just seeing everything kind of get ripped apart it feels you know dangerous and there, there feels to be a, a sense of speed with it all yeah uh, one final note on this episode before we move on is uh, to- uh, Tom Baker voiced the Bendu. He's best known as one of the doctors on Doctor Who and, and the, the older generation of Doctor Who. Uh, and he's, he's wonderful. They they have – there's some uh, special effects done to his voice, but I still – I love just how calm and authoritative he is. He just kind of radiates power. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I definitely want to talk a little bit more just about him as a character. Um yeah, at least just in terms of, of visuals and, and audio. You said the, the the effect they do, you can completely hear his voice. You know, it's not really like they're masking anything. But there's this weird effect where it sounds like his voice isn't interacting with, with the environment the way everyone else does. It, it feels like he's almost speaking in this, this vacuum that kind of filters his voice in a weird way. It's It's so cool to see, like, watching it come out of this giant creature and, you know, just... Physic, the physical design of him is, is fantastic. Uh, as soon as I saw him and, and the way he moved, even like the you know the way his arms moved and and his posture. Uh, if you've seen stuff like uh, the Dark Crystal, he really feels or or the Labyrinth, he really feels like a, a Henson character, like one of his puppets. And I, I'm a huge fan of of all of those works. So it's just a, a very striking design. And and yeah, with this effect and, and Baker's wonderful voice, it's just such a commanding. Um, such a commanding but like cool character with a lot of a lot of personality still. Yeah, I love how kind of playful and impish he is, a bit, a bit like Yoda, where he sneaks around and like will destroy the sensors behind their backs, uh, just to just to mess with them. Um, but about about the way you said, it sounded like his voice came from a different plane. It it, it that uh, reminded me of something with the uh, it's with uh, the Clone Wars with Mother Talzin. How every time she spoke, there was like this demonic echo, kind of like speaking through, like through the ether behind her. It was like really creepy and unnerving. This is a I guess a more benevolent version of that. Yeah, very very good sound design as we should expect from from anything from Lucasfilm. Uh, and, and the last thing I did want to talk about before uh, I know we're spending a lot of time on this opening episode, but. Uh, I really like um, the portrayal of Kanan where he is right now. Um, again, both in design and just as a character. Uh, I like the fact that, that he's not blaming Ezra really for anything. Uh, and as the episode, either this episode, yeah, yeah, it's, it's this episode, kind of points out that he's more than anything, he's, he's blaming himself, you know, as he thinks he's sensing Ezra or he's sensing the creatures and he's sensing his own fear. Uh, I, again, talking about consequences, not that this is, you know, consequences from his poor actions. It's just consequences of, of the task they've taken on, you know, being, you know, going where they're going and, and doing what they're doing. And the fact that it brought him face to face with Maul, that he's not just kind of shrugging it off, but he's really spending time in isolation and, and in mes- uh, meditation and and not exactly self-loathing, but, but very much this, you know, self-inflicted kind of uh, mental pain a little bit. Um, 
and I, I love the way it's it's all just visualized with this character where you know you've got the beard growing out and uh, and when he, his mask is super cool but when he takes it off you know the the wide eyes with the scar across the uh, the bridge of his nose it's, it's just you know as sad as it is to see uh, it's, I think it's a really cool place to pick up with his, with his character. So yeah, moving on to the next episode, we have The Holocrons of Fate. This one's directed by Stuart Lee and written by Henry Gilroy. Uh, so we have Darth Maul returns and takes the ghost crew hostage to force Ezra and Kanan to give him the Sith Holocron uh, from the Temple on uh, Malachor, as well as Kanan's Jedi Holocron. They ask the Bendu for advice, and he says that by uniting the Holocrons, they will be able to discover any secret they desire. So they meet with Maul to to, uh, to exchange, but he tricks them and tries to kill uh, Kanan and the hostages as he and Ezra unite the holocrons. Kanan survives and frees the crew. Um, so while Maul is looking for the uh, location of Obi-Wan as they're uniting the holocrons, Ezra is also is searching for a way to destroy the Sith. But Kanan comes in and pulls them both apart before either of them can get a f- the full message. Uh, and Maul escapes rambling about twin sons. Mm. So yeah, Maul's back. And as as always, Sam Witwer is just amazing as him. Yeah. I don't know entirely how I feel about the concept of putting two holocrons together and being able to find out anything. Like, from what I have gathered from the Clone Wars and Rebels, the holocron is simply a very advanced data storage unit that needs the Force to be uh, in, uh, interacted with. Isn't that, isn't that what it seems to be? Yeah, so you know, it's been a bit since we've seen this episode, and I've, I've we we talked about it before, and so I've just kind of thought about it, and I, I'm kind of with you in that. I'm not sure how much I I do like the fact that you know you can take any given uh, Jedi holocron with any given Sith holocron and join them, and you can you can access any sort of knowledge because I did kind of just look at them almost as like futuristic books. You know, there's there's a finite amount of knowledge contained within this and each holocron is is very specific to a certain level of knowledge you know and i that's that's how it seemed to be presented in um in the clone wars and and so that's kind of always how how i looked at it and so it didn't really make sense for me that uh that you can take this this one holocron that could be about you know just Jedi history or something, and, and combine it with with a similar one for Sith, and then to find any sort of present day knowledge or or as as they do location of a specific person. Yeah, the the Force never seemed to be that cooperative. Yeah, and to me, it it also seemed like the the only um, relationship the Force had with them was that it was the means with which you had to unlock them. It, it didn't. I didn't take it that it was. Although I guess we definitely have to see the force being much more involved in the holocrons with with this season considering you know the holocron is actively like speaking with with Ezra and so maybe that's a, a precedent the fact that there is a a level of like the living force operating within these that they can understand you know uh, more like current information but uh but even still just in terms of the knowledge we've been told is stored in here and I love how absolutely crazy Maul is. But just the way he can, at one second, appear so calm and reasonable. And just, you know, I just want this and you, then you'll be free. And then the next uh, scene, he's like screaming in the room, trying to open the Jedi holocron. And, and he's just walking alongside Caden, talking politely, then just throws him out of an airlock. Or, uh, you know, 
he whispers to the droid, execute the, execute the hostages, and turns around, well, your friends are safe now. He's just, he's, it's terrifying just how completely irrational he is and how, I mean, just how evil he can stoop in one, to in one scene and the next scene just seem like your best friend. Yeah, he's completely unstable. And I, you know, he the the Night Sisters helped him a little bit with his madness, but I, I think there's definitely still a remnant of that here. Mentally, he's he's never fully recovered. The, we know the, the loss of power drives him to madness and he's gained and lost a lot of power over the years. Yeah, it's, it's almost like it's a, a vicious cycle he's been put through. And so here, you know, it's, I think his true self is just this power hungry, mad character. And he's just learned that he can be, he can achieve his goals by being more calm and manipulative. And so I think, you know, this face of just reasonableness is is for the most part, just a facade uh, that he's kind of put on to get his way. Mm -hmm. And I think we get kind of a a foreshadowing of uh, Leia Poppins from The Last Jedi with the (laughs) Caden spacewalk. Uh, which is a really cool sequence. They, they Maul throws him out, but he's able to like grab on and leap back into the shielded uh, cargo bay, which I guess goes to show that people can survive in Star Wars space for a, a limited amount of time. Yeah, you know, I, I, I for the most part, and I really do love the Last Jedi, but that was visually, I love the idea of the scene, but visually that was not one of the things that I I cared for in the film, and I it looks much cooler here mainly because you know they're. We, we see it going through action. Uh, but one of the things that I thought was cool is that in, you know, there's only so many different ways you can visualize this, but just the way it shows them kind of their skin icing over uh, and w- with him kind of reaching his hand out with the forest, there, there's a lot of visual continuity between the two scenes. So going back to the holocrons, with, uh, we hear Maul is after, as he's looking into the light of the holocrons, he says he's after, after hope. And we we find out later on the season that he, what he's he's looking to find Obi Wan so he can kill him. So I guess it's almost like that whatever kind of grudge and madness that was created by Obi Wan robbing him of his destiny to be the uh, the Sith next to Palpatine as he took over the galaxy, like the it was just created some kind of madness that's gnawing at his soul to where he can't even have hope while Obi Wan lives and. It's really, really sad of uh, just you know, how broken he's and how he just cannot get past this quote unquote crime against him. And it, it's like it's still, you know, what this is 20 years later ish is still completely dominating his life. Yeah, it's, I, I interpreted it a little bit differently, although I, I definitely see it that way. And I think it could be that as well. But the way I took it was almost that finding it wasn't so much that he had to kill kenobi in order to find hope it's that whenever he first discovers that that obi-wan is alive he seems delighted by it i almost feel like he would oh really i thought i thought he was distraught see to me it it, it seemed like he almost would have been (laughs) it could be either way with sam Witwer. yeah it's his in, in a great way he's just kind of all over the place um to me it almost seemed like if he found out that kenobi was dead and either just kind of lived and died of old age, although that wouldn't make sense given McGregor's age, but uh, or if he was just shot by some nameless clone, that 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 would have almost gnawed at at um, at Maul. That you know during his power vacuum where he was just kind of wandering as this nomad, some some clone or someone other than him 
killed the person that he's hellbent on killing himself. And so when he found out Kenobi was alive, it almost seemed like, it's like, oh, good, he's alive. I can track him down and I can kill him. You know, it, I, I kind of took it as if that, that is his purpose in life is, is now to, to enact revenge. And so the hope he's looking for is, is the hope of, of learning where Kenobi is. Because if he can find it, it's almost reigniting that sense of drive and purpose and, and a mission that he, he always kind of had before him. Either way, it's quite depressing. Yes. But I, I do love that the answer to both their questions, you know, of where he can find Obi-Wan and where the secret lies to the destruction of the Sith, the, the, the kind of the image the holocron shows both of them is twin sons. Yeah, pretty cool symbolism. And then before we move on, uh, I do want to talk about the scene where they, they join the holocrons. Because um, I'm not sure initially, at least, how much I, I like the idea that you know, because it's animated, you can kind of be more flashy than you would otherwise. And, and and sometimes I like when a show is just more subdued. So whenever they join them, you know, you've got all these flashing lights and colors and everything going on. And I'm like, and on live action, would this really look that cool or would it look a little silly? Uh, but the reason that I ended up enjoying it in the end was, you know, when Kanan comes looking for Ezra and he's, he takes off his mask and he sees their silhouettes oh, yeah. through the light. Cool. It's such a cool image. So by the end of it, I was like, okay, never mind. This is this is pretty cool. Uh, so moving to the next episode uh, is the Antilles Extraction. This was directed by Saul Ruiz and written by Rogue One writer Gary Witta. In need of additional pilots, the Rebels are informed by a second fulcrum that there are Imperial TIE pilots willing to defect. Sabine is sent undercover into the Imperial Academy to recruit the defectors Wedge, Hobby, and Rake. After an initial escape plan which ends in the death of Rake, Sabine, Wedge, and Hobby are captured by Governor Price. Sabine is able to escape, and but, or, but she is aided by Agent Kaus, who tells her to tell Zeb or Gerizeb Aurelius that they're even, and they're able to regroup with the rest of the rebellion, bringing Wedge and Hobby into them. Yeah. Um. So here we get to see a bit more of like in. Back in season one, we got to see, I guess, officer training for the the Empire. Here we see their um, pilot training, and they have these really cool uh, simulators. The, the first thing that ran through my head when I saw them was just like the simulations, <laughs> which I've heard uh, more times than I can count, and it always brings me joy. <laughs> yeah, I think anyone who's played that game is hearing that line as as that scene happens. Yeah, I don't have a lot about to say about this episode, but I, it was one really dark scene. Like after they, they they get into Tie Fighters and go to escape, but they have a the Empire has a failsafe where the wings fall off, and then the Empire just starts shooting at the these helpless uh, pods, and they actually kill one of the students. It's really really dark. Yeah, again, it's the the Empire really does feel oppressive and and scary and dangerous. You know, they're they're an actual threat this time and. And I think that's, you know, in a, in a morbid way, it's always helped out when we actually get to see it instead of just hearing about it or being told that these are the bad guys. And, and so, yeah, when the, when the first escape plan goes so awry it's, and you, you see the consequence of that, the next time they try it, the stakes feel even heavier. Yeah. And just I love Callus. So getting to see that he actually has some honor and he's you know, trying to pay back um, Zeb for saving his life previously by a sparing Sabine is really, really cool. Yeah. He, there's, he really does just carry such a cool sense of, of honor with him. Um, and I, I love the direction they're taking with the character. Um, one of the other things that I, I thought about this episode, 
I, I do like seeing uh, backstory to major characters. I don't think we have to see the origin of everyone. But, you know, just I, I think if we are going to see them, you know, just shows and, and books and stuff like that, this is the kind of the place to just have these fun cameos and origins. And, and seeing Wedge, how, how he was originally, you know, a TIE pilot who just kind of, uh, you know, escaped and, and joined the the rebellion it it makes him i think that you know that's how the rebellion got wedge that's how they got solo let's i think there's even another seems like sabine that's right and so it seems like about half of their uh their fighters are just imperial defectors um so it's cool seeing him and and where he came from i think my only problem with him is you know i i know that this takes place uh like two or three years i guess before uh a new hope but his he just sounded much too young to me. I, I don't know. Obi Wan ages thirty years or forty years in twenty years. So that's true. I but <laughs> I don't know. I I have a headcanon explanation for that, and that you know the desert was just really harsh on <laughs> Got him. Got two sons, man. Exactly. Twice you do not want to know. That's why everyone there just looks so miserable. Um, Lars is really twenty five. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. It's just seeing him very much looking and sounding like a leader in a new hope it, it just seems a bit too far ahead in comparison to how young he sounds here you grow up fast in the rebellion i guess you do and your voice drops significantly um <laughs> but you know just a, a small complaint for the most part i i thought it was a cool a cool episode and and one of the things that i thought was really cool within the simulations is is that Sabine actually got taken out by a simulated version of the ghost and she kind of gets to experience what it's like to be up against themselves. Um, so yeah, just, you know, not a whole lot in the episode, but it's, it's pretty fun nonetheless. All right, so next episode is Hera's Heroes, directed by Mel Zwire and written by Nicole Dubuck. Uh, after the Empire's captured the Syndulla's ancestral home, Hera, Ezra, and Chopper infiltrate the, the house to steal back their family's Calaquari, which is a family heirloom. Uh, but Thrawn shows up and discovers who they are and captures them. They arrange an exchange to exchange them for Champs and Dula, but it's a trap. The, the rebels likewise have their own trap, and Hera blows up her home. And once again, Thrawn allows them to escape so he can further study their actions and movements. Right off the bat, I, Hera has always been like the most practical, down to earth, like the, the least likely character of this entire crew. To decide to go on this harebrained scheme to get a family artifact out of an imperially uh, controlled area. Just, she's always been so no nonsense, so just down to earth. I don't, I don't buy that she would be the one to say, I'm going to do this thing and risk, you know, my life and also the lives of my entire family and my, my entire family and Cham's re resistance force just to get this thing of which is just has sentimental value. It just feels so out of character for her. Yeah, it, to me it was made, you know, infinitely more difficult to buy into considering she had to be persuaded by the crew of the ghost in season 1 to go after Kanan. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it it does feel out of character and inconsistent with her to to be willing to to create an actual mission, you know, there there are crew members here, there are certain level of, of resources being used, all to do this, and I know that, you know, initially she she says no one has to come with me, and she offers to just do it herself, but that's not really enough. To me, Hera's the kind of person who'd be like, I'd, I'd rather do the right thing and fight for what 
what my uh, Calicori symbolized than risk the life of my friends to just get an object. You know, like, she'd bring some level of, like, nobility to the idea of leaving behind the object to fight for the symbol. And I think they could have done something like that for that, or for this episode, but... But one thing I do like, even though I kind of dislike the premise of the episode, I love what happens when Thrawn shows up and he immediately puts two and two together and realizes who she is. And I love he he does it all just through very cool, calculated, and, and logical steps. You know, she's stealing the Calicori. That means, obviously, she's family because no, no other Twi'lek would steal it. And then looking at the wall and you know, looking at the picture of her on the wall and just kind of putting it all together. I love how he's putting it together, the, the, the kind of boorish, uh, idiotic uh, Imperial captain just standing there. And when Hera realizes the game's up and kind of switches out of her French accent into her normal accent to talk back to Thrawn, the captain's like, wait, what's going on? How dare you speak back to him? And just... Also, I love how Thrawn is so completely demeaning to this guy because he has no respect for the culture, no respect for art. It, it blinds him to so much of what's actually going on right under his nose. And I love how the entire time he's kind of apologizing for the Imperial captain to, to Harry. You know, captain, you insult me in front of our host. It's just, you know, just another layer to his character and just seeing how intuitive he is with uh, this uh, foreign art. Yeah, I, I think my favorite thing, or at least one of my favorite things about the character of Thrawn is, is you know, he's always a step ahead of everyone. And the second you think you're ahead, he's finding some way to realize what's actually going on. Um, it's kind of an impossibility to beat him at his, at his own game. Um, but And that could be so lazy, you know. It could just be, they could have him be putting two and two together when it's truly like three and four like there's he could be making numerous completely illogical assumptions that just happen to be right because he's the smart guy but i love that every time he puts something together in this show it it, it's in a tangible way where it's like in retrospect you're like oh i really do see how he looks at that and assumes this and if he's leveled her down uh to to someone within this family and then he sees a picture on the wall everything he deduces not just in this episode but throughout the entire season it is in in very realistic ways where it doesn't feel like the assumptions that he comes to are just contrived and for the sake of the show, but that the he really is an intelligent person, almost like the Sherlock level character who can just look at his environment and come to conclusions that you know we might not have come to, but are are still there nonetheless. And a part I love even more than him figuring out who Hera was was as soon as he figures figures out who Hera is. Uh, Ezra draws his gun and instantly he's shot down by a stun blast from Thrawn as if he knew he was standing there the whole time. It was just it's like, oh, we are seriously in trouble now. And, you know, again, even that, you it kind of makes sense. Because um, if he knows who this must be, he knows there's no way she's there alone. And, and the rebellion, like this, this, the crew of the Ghost specifically, uh, have consistently, you know... Uh, gone under disguises as stormtroopers and stuff, and so everything he does, every, it all makes sense. Uh, and I think they, you know, they put an emphasis on that. That any time the rebellion seems to win, it almost as is as if he just kind of allowed it to happen so he can further study them. And and we know that he's been studying them and their methods for moments like this. And so it's it's really cool to see that. And just his appreciation for art is is cool too. We we don't really see that. From from anyone else in the empire, especially not the guy who threatened or who who claims you know he'll just burn down the Calicori, um, and so to see this kind of very 
intelligent, sophisticated character um, who tactically fits right in and even betters most of the Empire, but kind of sets himself apart in this kind of high society type character. So, you know, one of the, th- you know, one of, because I, I said, you know, my problem with it is I wasn't entirely able to, to buy into the premise uh, other than, other than Thrawn, really my, the way I was able to enjoy this is just kind of to accept it just for the sake of going on with it. And I think there's, there is some fun elements um, in the episode itself. Uh, fun call. Like one of the things I liked a lot is whenever they, they first uh, stop the the speeder stormtroopers and ends up just kind of says sorry the kid wants your helmet. <laughs> so the next episode is the last battle and this one is directed by Bosco and G and written by Brent Friedman. Um, so Ezra, Rex, Kanan, and Zeb search an old separatist base in search of weapons to be used in the rebellion. They are captured by a group of battle droids that were never shut down following the end of the Clone War, being led by the droid general Kalani. In order to prove he would have been victorious during the Clone War itself, Kalani simulates a battle scenario from the Clone Wars where the Rebels must rescue Zeb. The Rebels prove victorious, but both Rex and Kalani are willing to kill each other, so Ezra must convince them that the only victor in the Clone Wars was the Empire, considering that the clones were decommissioned and the droids were shut down. Uh, And just as he mentions this, the Empire itself begins attacking the base. Agreeing with Ezra, the Rebels and the droids join forces, buying time for the Rebels to escape with a newly acquired Phantom. And I think my favorite moment of this was where Ezra says, wait, who's Roger? (laughs) Yeah, this... I I think there's a lot going on thematically, or at least, you know, there's a lot intended to be going on thematically and and symbolically through this episode. Um, But I I think what made me like it the most is just that it, it... dove in 100% on nostalgia with the Clone Wars. Uh, and so you got lines like that. Um, and you've got probably my favorite moment of the entire episode is when it ends and the, the ending title card is in the old Clone Wars, more rigid font. Uh, and instead <laughs> of playing the the Rebels closing theme, they play that, that variation of this of Williams' Star Wars theme that would always close out the Clone Wars episodes. That, that is cool. I, I did not notice that at all. I'm going to have to and pay it, attention next it's, time. It's funny because I didn't notice it probably for the first like 10 seconds it played because, you know, I'm coming off of six seasons of the Clone Wars and, and hearing that is kind of just par for the course for me. And so I was just thinking, you know, wait, what's going on? And I realized this is the wrong music. Um but yeah, you know, whenever I just realize, you know, I'm also looking at a, a very different, more differently stylized title card is just a cool way to pay respect to the previous series. Mm-hmm. I love how Rex just slips right back into his war mode. You know, he's barking orders to everyone and the way he, him and Kanan kind of form that classic Jedi clone team and the, the sword and shield maneuver, which I'm not exactly sure what it is, but it sounds cool. <laughs> Um, and I love how the, uh, the, the tactical droids like, you know, the Jedi rescue is a recurring scenario in, what, in whatever, 150 battles. And just, yeah, that was basically every, every episode there was a Jedi rescue in the Clone Wars. So a lot of fun callbacks. Yeah. And it's cool just to see the super tactical droid itself because um, I don't think it was in the first couple seasons of Clone Wars. And, and for those seasons, you know, it, it very much just focused on battle droids. And, and I'm one of the people who definitely finds them funny in in the movies and then in the later seasons of Clone Wars when they were used more sparringly. But here, you know, I, or whenever the, the super tactical droid first came in, then they really started to feel threatening. Um, 
And so to see him again kind of leading the charge in this series is really cool. <laughs> I liked how uh, the droids were called D-Squad after they joined together, which is uh, uh, Colonel Gascon's group from the best ep- uh, arc of the Clone Wars. Oh, yeah. Everybody remembers it, for better or for worse. I love uh, when General Kalani, the droid, is for, he's got them captured and he, he's questioning them. And he asks Kaden, you know, Jedi, is this your Padawan? And Kanan just says, most of the time. Uh, you still, it, it does feel almost like the the kind of banter that we would get from, from Obi-Wan and Anakin during the Clone Wars. And I guess, you know, just to talk real quick about what was intended with this episode. Um, I, I think this was their way of um, of providing some sort of finality to the Clone Wars. Considering, you know, and it actually... Despite the fact that, you know, the idea of the the last battle, you know, of the Clone Wars being this this fabricated scenario is maybe a little silly. One of the things that got me thinking about was was something I never would have before, which is, you know, we, we don't really get to see the immediate aftermath um, of the ending of the Clone War. And it would kind of make sense why, despite the fact in bigger, you know, just from the bigger picture perspective, this is just kind of a silly little thing they're doing. Um, but for the droid, for Kalani and, and for Rex, this is kind of their only means to achieve any sort of semblance of, of finality. You know, considering, I almost, I almost had to think, you know, how how would Palpatine have handled, how, or how did he handle, you know, wrapping up the Clone Wars? Considering, you know, all of the Separatists were already killed by, by Anakin before Revenge of the Sith ended... Um, and we're told the droids were shut down and the, the clones were decommissioned. So how did he present the end of the war and who ultimately won? I'm assuming he would portray it to where, you know, obviously the the Republic won. That closure feels very unsatisfying, I guess, to the to the people involved who were so heavily involved with it for the three years it happened. Um, and for it to just kind of go away overnight like that, where, you know, the Jedi are gone, the Separatists surrender. For everyone who, like this, consumed their lives for that period... It doesn't really provide closure. Um, and so, you know, it's it's just this kind of fun one-off episode um, that I personally don't really have, you know, too much investment in outside of just my enjoyment of, of the way it plays up nostalgia. Um, but but for Rex and for the droid, you kind of would understand. And I love the, the, way, the reason the droids are still activated where, you know, someone as intelligent as this super tactical droid spots the the way, the resolution of the clone wars coming and he's like no we're not going to be deactivated and and overrides that yeah um i don't i don't entirely buy that like the, the it's not just the tactical droid and rex it seems like the whole theme of the episode is this is the closure of the the, the clone wars you know we finally got it's finished yay we should all applaud at the end i don't buy any of that however i do really like the concept of someone like rex who was like it's not just he was born and then he was trained literally in his dna he is programmed as a warrior for this specific war and then to realize like everything that like when they come out the gate everything they identify with as like their identity is their soldiers for the for the clone wars and you know as the series went they they slowly started developing their own personalities and their own ideas but his core being is sort of is still that soldier so yeah, I can imagine it would be incredibly traumatic to go through all that and to and you know, to to grow from that kind of person and then realize everything you thought you knew and believed was a lie. 
that everything you were created for was a lie. Like, yeah, I, I can see that that would bring a lot of charm. I just don't buy that this little skirmish is the end of the the, the, con- the conclusion of the Clone Wars or whatever. It almost makes me wonder if if it wouldn't have been better to to actually have the droids genuinely not know that the Clone Wars has ended and for the state for it to not have been this this scenario created just to prove a point you know maybe if if they were still just out in space and somehow came across some resource or or actually captured Zeb or or you know something to where to create it into an actual battle with actual stakes as opposed to just well hey let's you know let's see who would actually have won yeah i suppose it's trying to parallel with the um uh, the japanese soldiers on i think it was i think it was okinawa who who stayed in hiding after the surrender till like the 1970s they were they're basically waging, waging this guerrilla warfare on the government um because they didn't truly believe that japan had surrendered they would not surrender until like a commanding officer came and told them so i'm guessing they're, they're trying to call back to that but, but yeah it would have been better if the, the the droid didn't know that the war had ended so next episode is Imperial Super Commandos. This is directed by Stuart Lee and written by Christopher Yost, who is a Marvel Comics and Animation writer. He also wrote on Thor The Dark World and Ragnarok. So, the protectors of Concord Dawn's base has gone quiet, so Ezra Sabine and a captive Fen Rao go to investigate. Rao escapes, but they discover that the base has been destroyed and everyone killed. A band of Mandalorians loyal to the Empire led by Gar Saxon arrive and capture Ezra. Sabine goes back for him, but Rao doesn't want to and leaves. Then uh, Ezra and Sabine go on a crazy speed, uh, that speeder, uh, jetpack chase through a canyon, and right as they're about to be caught, Rao changes his mind and returns and saves them. And in the end, he decides to join the rebellion. I really like the opening scene here where uh, Rao and Sabine are playing some kind of strategy game, like where they're sticking swords through boxes on a hologram. I'm not sure what it actually, I, I don't understand the strategy, but it's, it's kind of a cool, like a finally a different game besides hollow chess. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it was cool to see. And it, wasn't it Chopper who's, like, projecting it onto the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was neat. And we get a bit more into Mandalorian culture here. Uh, Fan Rao, even though... You know, I love how he plays polite and nice the whole time, but the moment their backs are turned, he just jumps up and knocks both Ezra and Sabine out. It's, like, a really shocking scene because it kind of lulls you into um kind of comfort. And then just out of the blue, he jumps in. They're both stunned instantly. It's really, really jarring. Yeah, I love that it didn't cut to his face and his eyes slowly kind of looking around, you know, getting you ready for the fact that he's, he's about to do that or even hinting at it. Um, and it just feels very uncharacteristic for, for an animated show, even, you know, for a kid show for that matter. But I love, you know, Ezra just comes up and, and starts to talk. He's like, you know, I don't get the whole Mandalorian thing. And the second he does that, Sabine shouts at him to watch out and, and Rao's got him from the back, and the whole screen just goes dark. It, it, like you said, it, it is really, really jarring. And, you know, as a viewer, you don't really think about the fact, like, yeah, you turn your back on the hostage, they can do that. But if he, if Rao didn't do that, I wouldn't have questioned him. I wouldn't have been like, you know, oh, he had his back turned, why didn't he act? Just because you, you don't really expect things like that. And so, yeah, I, I do like the way that it got started, and, you know, that they did that that early on in the episode. Just talking about Gar Saxon and uh, and the design of these uh, these Imperial Mandalorians. It's one of the coolest, just visually uh, designed sets of armor in in the series to me. Where it's you see you see the the 
aesthetic of both the Mandalorian armor and their shapes, along with kind of that sleek stormtrooper design with the way it curves and, and the color schemes and everything. And it's just a really cool piece of armor. And I, we get, I think we get some more conversations or more like uh, shouting matches between Sabine and Rao, uh, similar to the uh, arguments between Hera and Cham, where Sabine is trying to justify the fact that she has, for all, for all intents and purposes, forsaken Mandalore to serve a greater purpose in the galaxy. And the Mandalorians are so stuck on the you know, the honor. It's all about Mandalore. It's, it's, it's like the, the rest of the galaxy does not matter. You, you're loyal only to Mandalore. And I just like the, to see those kind of philosophies clashing. And it just cause, because they're so personal and ingrained in each character, they get really emotional. Yeah, and something else that I really liked is this is kind of continuing with the first episode of The Protectors of Concord Dawn. This is, this is really where they start making a character out of Sabine, who has been mostly just kind of someone there to kind of... Blow things up. Banter with the rest of the crew. And, and yeah, blow stuff up and make it colorful. Um, but here, and, and one of my favorite things as well about the their dialogue is, in a lot of ways, it, it does just kind of serve as exposition. It, it's there for function to to give us backstory on, on Mandalore. But the way it's presented, it feels organic with the conversation. It really does sound... Like these two clashing clans kind of justifying the other's position and prodding and, uh, and attacking the others. And through that, they're really able to, to continue and, and build the lore of, of Mandalore. And then something else I noticed was it seemed like this was almost a, a concentrated effort to, to bring the Mandalorians back to their pre-Disney era way of... Of, of society, you know, with Clone Wars, with Satine really trying to, to turn them around and, pretty, you know, by and large turn them into a, a pacifist people. Um, that didn't go so well. See here, yeah, and so to see it here now, it's, you know, you've you've got different warring clans, and it's very much about uh, a warrior's life and and this certain code of honor you have with your people and. Um, and I, I don't think it contradicts what we saw before, you know, because you had characters like Pre Vizsla to to acknowledge that Mandalore was what it was like in the EU at some point, and it was kind of Satine uh, and maybe people before her, but really this newer kind of uh, form of government. And as soon as that's gone with the siege of of Mandalore, the true desires of the people come back, and and they start forming up their their family clans again, and. Um, and sort of find that out through a very natural, you know, exchange. It, uh, I thought it worked really well. Yeah, and I like how defensive uh, Sabine is. It's, it's like she was brought up her entire life with this this kind of mantra of Man- Mandalore beaten into her. And even though, you know, she came to her own conclusion and, and decided to leave, like you you still feel that in her as she's trying to argue with Wrench, like she has to go on the defensive, and like she has to, as if she has to defend her actions, um, and choices, and it feels very real for a character who grew up in that culture. Yeah, and you know, she still seems to defend her own, you know, Mandalorian bloodline. In her mind, you know, she's not entirely acting out of out of step with with what a Mandalorian should do in the moment. Mm-hmm. One thing I do not like at all about this episode is the way it ends with Fan Rao deciding to join the rebellion, like. Five minutes previously, he was going to leave Sabine and Ezra there to die. 
And then all of a sudden now he's not only coming back. I, I buy him coming back to save Sabine because he she she was honorable and you know in their re- weird warped Mandalorian morality that was worth saving. But I don't get then instantly deciding I'm going to also commit my life to this rebellion that I could not care less about you know five minutes earlier. It, it feels like a lot. This is the this is a kid show. You have to have happy resolution and each character has to have their own lesson learned by the end of each episode it didn't feel natural yeah it's, it's the same problem with you know sabine's sister with chancel uh Sindula, and and now with rower like you said you know we've got the last five minutes we've got to wrap it up and we really need him on their side now um and, you know a, a moment in the episode that i thought was out of character for him was you know whenever i i think they're sneaking back into the camp and and they, you know, they hear the way Gar Saxon took out his men, and and I, I, I don't remember the actual line, but Rao says something to the effect of, you know, if, if you hadn't captured me, I'd be dead alongside my people, and he's kind of using that as a way of like, you know, you guys saved my life in a way. I'm grateful. Um, that really doesn't seem to to gel with with the kind of uh people the mandalorians are uh maybe i'm just making assumptions but it, it seemed it, it makes sense for normal people but mandalorians are crazy so exactly like, to <laughs> me it, it it seemed like the more natural thing for him to do based on his character would be you know maybe in his eyes it, it was dishonorable for him to be here while, or for him to not be here while his people died it was yeah. like he would he would prefer to die with honor among his people as opposed to live because he was because he was a prisoner uh, and for him to be grateful over that, it just it did not feel consistent with with who he is and with who Mandalorians are. Uh, and then yeah, his his quick turnaround, like you, yeah, it makes sense for him to come back and and you know help them out because it's kind of you know maybe he could see it as cowardice for him to flee while the people who the man who killed his people is left to kill even more people and he once again gets out unscathed. But there was nothing. I didn't see anything that would have changed him philosophically here. You know, maybe the fact that Gar Saxon was the head of, of the Empire, uh, was the head of the Empire, and, you know, supposedly they were aligned with the Empire, and yet they're here wiping out his people. But for him to just see that and then say, well, I guess I'm a rebel now, it it doesn't really make sense for him. Yeah. And one last note, uh, Gar Saxon is voiced by Ray Stevenson, and really weird connection is, Ray Stevenson is the guy who plays Volstag in the Thor movies, and this episode is written by Christopher Yost, who I said uh, worked on Thor: The Dark World and Ragnarok. It's kind of weird. A very recognizable voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I liked him a lot. I like the way he voices Saxon. Between um between whoever it, I, I forget the name, but the whoever voices Fen Rao and now Gar Saxon and, and Pre Vizsla, obviously beforehand, uh, they've got a lot of like strong sounding voices for this very manly almost like star wars equivalent of sparta (laughs) kind of people so the next episode is iron squadron uh this is directed by saul ruiz and written by matt mishnovets um on a mission to assist in the evacuation of rebel sympathizers from the planet micapo the rebels meet iron squadron a three-man crew led by commander sato's reckless nephew mart Ezra, Sabine, and Chopper stay behind with the Phantom to convince Iron Squadron to evacuate, but they are unwilling to leave their planet behind. They are then attacked by Imperial forces, and all but Mart are able to escape. Mart is left with his ship. Uh, Mart is left in his ship with limited power and requests help from the Rebellion. With the assistance of Commander Sato, the Rebels are able to return and rescue him. Yeah, this one annoys me. I pretty much hate Iron Squadron. They're just really 
stupid kids. Like, like I can, I, you know, if they were just, you know, brash kids who wanted to fight, fine. But the, they keep getting shown with, you know, increasingly more and more evidence that you cannot win this fight. And, like, you know, Iron Squadron doesn't run. And it's just they're, they're, they're like, absurdly stupid about how they go about it. And I just don't care. And by the end, when Mark is by himself and, like, he's requesting for the Rebels to come help him, but despite the fact that it's they know it's a trap, like, just leave the kid and let him die. He brought this on himself. This was his choice. He wanted this. You can't risk the entire Rebellion's fleet to save this one idiot. But this is how we win. Saving who we love. I don't love him. I don't even like him. <laughs> yeah, I, I have very few notes on this episode. This... This is definitely one of those ones where it's, I, I power through it as a completionist, um, mainly because it plays up. It, it almost like it feels like it knows me personally, and it plays up on all the tropes that annoy me <laughs> with 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 the bratty kids and and allowing them way too much screen time and not putting them in their place nearly enough. That's what I needed to backhand Mark. Oh yeah, um, I love. I do like a uh, Zeb's comment at first was like sounds like a ship full of ezra's <laughs> um but you know the, the episode clearly knows that he's we're meant to see him as brash and annoying and stuff but you know to me if 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 you understand the reaction this gets from the audience you need to give them the satisfaction of like the moments where they get put in their place and they learn their lesson and, and things like that and this episode never really has that uh you you know you have the point where the other crew members of the of Iron Squadron are like, yeah, we should probably get out of here. And and Mart is like, okay. And then he backs out at the very end and he's like, you guys leave. You know, I'll, I'll let you all leave and I'll, I'll buy you all time. That moment of heroics to me comes out of nowhere and feels so unearned for the character because there's been no growth. There's been nothing that's happened between him first meeting the crew and them leaving. And yet... We're almost supposed to look at this as like, all right, guys, I've got this. You know, I've learned my lesson and I'm going to get y'all out of this. And then he calls for help. Exactly. It's only undermined by the fact it's like, okay, never mind. Guys, come get me. It's oh, it's just such a such an odd episode because I I don't root for him. I don't feel as if he undergoes any sort of sincere change in character. Uh, and then my biggest problem, you know, as as we've all found out through episodes with Jar Jar, I I really hate unearned praise. <laughs> um, when a character does something stupid and is not, you know, berated for it, or the opposite is is rewarded for it, it really irks me. And so for for the Iron Squadron to be rescued and brought back and almost given like a hero's return kind of welcome um, on Chopper Base, that, that really left a bad taste in my mouth when it cut to credits. One quick praise. I liked how at the beginning when um when they first see Iron Squadron before we're actually introduced to the idiots inside, the way they, they they kind of lead the TIE fighters away, then loop back and then swoop over the transport and like drop basically cargo crates full of explosives. Like it was a really cool visual and the way it was set up, I liked it a lot until I saw who actually did it. Um two more problems. First off, I don't understand why Thrawn sent Constantine by himself in a single light cruiser. Like Thrawn, for all, for whatever he is, he is absolutely not wasteful with lives or equipment. 
and this this felt like he was trying to punish Constance Yamasumi for his arrogance, but I don't, I really don't think he would, you know, put that ship at risk and put all the the crew at risk and and all that stuff just to prove a point to an underling. He's he, that that's not who he is. He doesn't have that kind of vindictiveness and pride in him. So it just it just felt weird that he sent Constantine by himself, knowing he would be defeated. Um, just felt completely out of character. Yeah, so I think the only justification I could I could think of in my mind would be, you know, maybe in a weird pragmatic way, he's he's kind of thinking maybe a longer term game where it's you know, if he can t- if he can humble himself through this and, and get taken down a few notches, this would cause him to come around more towards my way of thinking and in the future it, it will better his performance. You know, maybe maybe he almost needs this public humiliation it just for the sake of his own performance you know teach him a lesson now and make him a better leader then you know later but yeah even still um it doesn't really feel like something he would have done before but for the character i guess i might be able to you know convince myself that that he's thinking strategy with this move yeah um and another problem is i don't like like you don't like unearned uh praise it always annoys me when our heroes win by dumb luck, because in this case the empire had planted a mi- a trip mine, or some kind of electro- electromagnetic mine on the uh, the iron squadron, and they were they were waiting for the ghosts to link up to it. They would blow up both ships, and they link up, and he's like, you know, blow up the ship. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh no, there's there's interference. I can't connect. I can't connect to the bomb, and. So they were they're able to delay long enough to to throw the mine back at the cruiser, and it's like that was like the the rebels did something incredibly stupid. They connected to the ship knowing there was a it was attached to a mine, and the, the empire went to blow it up. You know, by all rights and skill and you know tactics, they had won that battle. But just for some dumb reason, there was they couldn't connect, and so the rebels don't die. It just it felt very cheap. Yeah, every victory they've had usually you know in with the the phantom or the ghost usually comes from like Hera always having like one last trick up her sleeve or just you know her own competency as a as a pilot you know she knows what to do she's able to think on her feet and for her to you know just kind of swoop in win by luck and and leave you know again it just it it doesn't feel like how this crew has operated before um and yeah just the fact that that you know on paper the empire won <laughs> there, there's nothing thematic about the fact that, you know, on paper they won, but, you know, it was the spirit of uh, of the rebellion that ultimately won out. It, you know, it's no, it didn't connect, and that's it. It's it's pretty frustrating as a viewer. Yeah. Uh, all right, that's enough on that one. Next one is the Wakanthu job, uh, directed by Mel Zwire and written by Gary Witta again. So Ezra de- uh, arranges another deal with Hondo, and this time as Morrigan as well, to salvage supplies off an abandoned Imperial freighter that is trapped above a dangerous storm. And what, what, then they go in, and while there they face off against sentry droids and the squabbling criminals before escaping just in time as the ship is torn apart in the storm. Hondo, yay, as Morrigan, boo. Basically. So, well, I've never actually disliked as Morrigan. I thought he was just kind of a, a funny... Um, <laughs> villainous character and uh what i found out recently the the voice actor, he's the, he also voices um poe's adopted father yeah. in kung fu panda as well as the guy who who creates the eyes for 
um, the replicants in the original Blade Runner. Oh, huh. He also had a a voice role in um in the Crystal Crisis on Utapau arc from that was that was never released. But yeah, I I really I've never mind the character. I I think it could be kind of fun. I one you know his voice and look is very distinct, so it's just kind of a a new character you know to remember. But I like him. I can actually say I do like him when he shares the screen with Hondo, just because their personalities clashing is is a lot of fun to watch and seeing them constantly like just the fact you know no honor among thieves rings completely true as as they try to go on this mission together. That got, got kind of irritating for me. It's like they're hanging over a storm and the ship is slowly going in. Like towards the end, we see like there's a really cool visual where um, the ship is dipping into the storm and, it's, and it's, the winds are so fast it's literally like. Uh, like a grinder grinding away at the bottom of the ship. Like this is happening. Yet everyone's just spending the entire time bickering, and even Ezra and Zeb are getting caught up in it. It's like they're all they're all just children again. And like, why did Hera send the two kids to babysit the two idiot criminals on the most dangerous job they've ever done? It's just uh, whatever. Yeah. So it's, it's one with, like the premise is ridiculous and i would be more you know i'm not entirely bothered by the fact that ezra and zeb are kind of bickering because i almost would believe that their bickering could possibly be the death of them <laughs> but that, that that's season one stuff like they should have yeah uh but i i didn't feel like they're arguing there there was just more of you know just kind of arguing as, as they go on the mission and i think there's a lot of funny stuff that came through it like with ezra cutting a hole in the door and then as soon as it goes through <laughs> the door just opens and he's like oh sorry uh, and then, uh, you know, as as they leave through the hallway um, and they try to close the path off with the droids behind them and there's the hole left there. And, and so all the lasers <laughs> and droids are still coming through. That's a good gag. You know, I think based on the premise, it was the wrong, maybe the wrong episode for a lot of what was in this, you know, considering it's a very dangerous mission and they're on a, they're on a timer. Um, but I still ended up, in the moment having a lot of fun with it and i thought the dynamic was fun enough and yeah i i, I enjoyed it for the most part and <laughs> one funny moment towards the end is when the ugnot that uh melch that hondo had abandoned in his earlier mission uh hid inside the, their uh, treasure crate to make sure he got brought along this time <laughs> i love at the end after he after hondo finds out he actually didn't get any of the treasure and he's like oh yes well, I guess your friends are the real treasure or some kind of, like, cliche Disney line. He's, like, breaking down crying because all he has is the Ugnaught. And then he gives him that swift punch to the gut. And it's just the, the visual of, like, you know, Hondo eagerly opening his chest and he just sees uh, Melch down there just kind of open his arms almost like, you know, saying to Dodd and hops out and he's got this smile on his face like he could not be happier with the way the situation played out. Or played out. Uh, it's a, it's a fun way to end the episode, I thought. Uh, the uh, Melch is actually voiced by D. Bradley Baker with all his pig squeals and grunts. <laughs> oh, I, I love towards the beginning where uh, Hondo keeps being insensitive to uh, to Kana's blindness. He's like, oh, now don't be blind to this, biz- this amazing business. Oh, sorry. Or, yes, I knew you would see things. My uh, Sorry again. <laughs> but then uh, once they actually realize... Um, that Hondo hadn't told him the whole truth. He's like, well said. And some of the truth is better than none of the truth, which is what you used to get. So you cannot say I have not grown. His <laughs> justification for like his growth as a character was great. I, I swear, I almost feel like Ezra in this episode. Where it's like everyone else can see that Hondo's just a terrible person. 
And, you know, in the reality is he is a terrible person. But like Ezra, I keep finding ways to try to defend him and be like, oh, he's, he's not bad. He's a great guy. Uh, and one of the one of the things kind of like uh, Zeb in the first episode, you know, using the term wizard. I love that when Asmorgan gets upset with Hondo, he calls him Chuba. Uh, and that's what Sebulba says whenever Jar Jar flings whatever that frog thing was into his into his meal and Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got the moment with you know when the, the mission is is getting worse and they're about to have to leave and Chopper you know beeps something and then uh, Ezra's like no not every man for himself and Chopper tries to avoid the line. Uh, yeah, maybe with this level of stakes, maybe the wrong episode for it. But I ended up. I feel like I laughed at most of the gags. <laughs> With this next episode, which is considerably darker and less lighthearted, uh, is Inside or An Inside Man, and this was directed by Stuart Lee and written by Nicole Dubuc. At the request of Ryder Azadi, Ezra Kanan and Chopper meet with him on Lothal and learn that factory workers for the Empire are sabotaging Imperial vehicles. They also learn from Fulcrum that the Empire is developing a new type of weapon they must discover before their planned strike on Lothal is to be uh, completed. Ezra Kanan, Chopper, and family friend to the Bridgers, Murad Sumar, go undercover at the factory to find the weapons plan. Grand Admiral Thrawn suspects sabotage already and forces Sumar to test one of the vehicles he inspected, which kills him, proving he sabotaged it. Thrawn orders the place to go on lockdown. Kanan, Ezra, and Chopper are able to find the files for their weapon and escape with the assistance of Callus, who has revealed himself to be the second fulcrum. Upon inspection of the files, they learn the Empire is developing a new type of TIE fighter, which forces the Rebels to rethink their strategy and their strike on Lethal. Yeah, a cool callback to Season 1 is the, the guy, Sumar, is the man who they rescued after his farm was destroyed way back in fight or flight. Yeah, I picked up on that too, and it's, you know, that's that's always cool to to see, you know, them not just kind of scrap these characters who come and go. And, well, he does get scrapped. Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but in, in a way that makes sense in the story as opposed to just kind of never showing up again. And I love that they brought in the concept of these slave laborers are resisting the empire by making shoddy products. And that's actually something taken from history. Like the clone Wars is full of true historical references. And this as well, where uh, in Nazi Germany, they had their, their factories towards the end of the war were run almost entirely by slave labor. And so you would have the slaves sending out dud bombs and defective machinery, like all throughout the war. Um, so, that was a really cool um, parallel. Yeah, I, I'd seen a documentary on that, and so that's where my mind went instantly as, uh, as that was revealed to be what this episode is about. Um, and then just talking about the, uh, you know, the malfunctioning machinery they're they're creating, the scene where where Thrawn suspects that that's what ha- that's what's happening and, and forces Sumar uh, to inspect it himself. That's almost to me like Thrawn at the height of how scary he is. Um, and that, that's another thing I, I really do like about the characters, you know, because he is always kind of one step ahead of everyone. When he's on screen, he just he feels threatening and scary. And, and you're really hoping there's some sort of way that they're able to, you know, to get out on top. Um, and so the second, you know, he, he knows what's going on and and you know Sumar, as it starts to overheat, and he's he's trying to come up with the ex- excuses, he's like, "Oh, someone else must have tampered with this," and he tries to stop and uh, and to prove the point, you know, and to as a show of force, I guess he forces him to complete it, and it just blows up and mm. kills him. And this is where we get the full reveal that 
uh, Callus is indeed Fulcrum. And I love the scene where Ezra and Caden are in um, Stormtrooper armor. They get into the elevator with Callus. He's like, hello, rebels. <laughs> they both instantly turn around and punch him. And then for the rest of the episode, like they just keep throwing him around. Like I think when they go into the the uh, to the the information room, like they when they open the door, they just kind of throw him through it. And at the end, where he's like, "All right, you got to hit me and make it look convincing." <laughs> and Ezra just like takes him without even looking and throws him through a glass screen and up into the ceiling. Is like, what? I had to make it look convincing. I like you know, I like the fact that they don't instantly just kind of embrace him with open arms. Um, they're very they're very skeptical about it. And they use it as a way just to kind of like vent their frustrations. But yeah, I, I was very happy with the fact that that he is Fulcrum and that's where they're taking his character. Um, just because, you know, I, I love what they did with him while he was in the Empire. Um, but with the direction they were going and the fact that he's like the one lone man, with the sense of honor, at least at his level, um, in a faction that just knows nothing of camaraderie. Uh, I don't know where else they they really could have taken his character there. So to so to continue him by getting him out and forcing him to adapt to a new kind of um, you know a, a new dynamic, uh, I, I really like seeing that. And uh, one last thing is that as they're escaping, they get into they get inside of a, a ATST and they try to get the doors with these two ATATs out there. And there's this really cool scene where they're hiding behind the legs of one ATAT as it's trying to move around, and the other one's trying to get a clear shot of it. It's just this really cool scene that shows off kind of the size and weight and the diff- the, the scale of these things as they're trying to move and they're like basically kind of walking along behind the legs of one. It's just a just kind of really great uh, sense of scale and um, and distance as it's as going on. Yeah, and it, it feels almost like it's it's staged like a live action movie. You know, there's a lot of moving parts and, and the way they have the perspective. It feels kind of bigger in scale. Uh, I just think they did a they made really good use of their animation here. All right, so next episode is Visions and Voices, directed by Bosco and Gene, written by Brent Friedman. So Ezra keeps seeing and hearing uh, visions of Maul around the Rebel base. So Kanan takes him to the Bendu, and then Maul actually shows up wanting to talk. He blackmails Ezra w- with a threat of revealing their base to the Empire to come with him so they can you know finish the mind meld and learn what they need what each one wanted to know from the holocron before they were interrupted so they go to dathomir and through some night sister spell they 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 you know finally learn exactly what they wanted um basically the twin sons tatooine uh from the magic meanwhile kane and sabine show up to help ezra but they are possessed by demon spirits of the night sisters uh, Maul leaves and Ezra has to go back into the caves and destroy the altar to free Kanan and Sabine. So at the top, this opening is really creepy where we have Ezra kind of going around base and he keeps hearing Maul calling out to him and just looking and he like see a split second of Maul walking one way or standing over somewhere and it gets to the point where he's so freaked out where he almost kills a, uh, some poor rebel pilot or soldier uh, because he thinks he's Maul and it's it's you know, really unnerving. Yeah, I... I was watching this episode kind of later at night and the, the first time you see the silhouette of Maul, it kind of got me. Uh, and it, it's funny because the, um, the demonic villain of Insidious <laughs> has always been compared to, to Darth Maul in his design. And there's a moment in the, in the movie where they, they slowly open a door and it's revealed that his silhouette is standing there. So I kind of got flashbacks of that watching this here. Um, 
But yeah, I, I I love just the imagery, and it obviously he's got such a striking and obvious design that you can just kind of put a silhouette there, and you know exactly who it is, and and then you know Sam Witwer just being as menacing as ever. It's it's a really cool scene. And then they go back to Dathomir, which is you know very creepy location, and we could see a thrawn, uh, not thrawn, uh, a shrine of malls, or I guess. I don't know. Maybe this was actually his home for a while or something, but it's basically you see all kinds of artifacts from his his years uh, as a Sith. And there's, yeah, it definitely felt like, you know, a makeshift living arrangement he could have been at for a while. Yeah, but the really disturbing one is you have a picture of Satine on the wall hanging over the Darksaber, which is a level of dark and morbid that I didn't know the show was capable of. I think it's, it was capable of here just because of how... It, it's just it's something that you have to have known from the Clone Wars to even like put put together you know it's it's not obvious in it but for everyone you know who's who is paying attention to who that is and what that means and the second you realize that you're like oh wow so so Maul is that kind of person and the, the fact that like this is a highlight in his life was you know killing Obi-Wan's love oh gosh it's it's so sick you know in his mind maybe no one else is there there to see it you know so you know you put a a, a trophy for di- for display but the fact that you know this is just where he is and for his his own home decor even if he's the only person to see it he's making the shrine it's it's pretty disturbing yeah and it's it's it was cool to see the night sister magic and it's always been something that's been so fascinating to me of this this power that's kind of outside the force um and just the the way it's visualized with the green smoke and the the way their eyes like just turn green and start spilling the, the smoke is really, really, uh, really creepy. And then there's the, the possession scene where you have Kanan and Sabine taken, and Sabine's like crawling down the walls like this classic demonic Im- imagery. It's yeah, or when he, when uh, Ezra's kind of force pushing out the cave and she's like clawing at the ground as he's pushing out. Yeah, it's really, really nasty. Yeah, if you recall, I. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't actively dislike it, although there were certain aspects that I wasn't a fan of. Um, but the the way the magic was portrayed, I was never sold 100% on it. Although with each subsequent viewing of Clone Wars, I became, you know, it eventually stopped being something that I had to get used to and just became, well, this is Star Wars, you know, this is accepted canon now. And so by the end of my most recent viewing of Clone Wars, I was more okay with it. <laughs> and then I, I can now say I'm on fully on board with it here now. The imagery here is really, really freaky. I think this this episode took me back to episodes of the clone wars where i was like man they really just said screw being a kid's show we're doing what we want um because for the most part this really does not feel like an episode uh of a kid's show you know whenever they first start making their connection and you do you've got that green mist just they they open their eyes and it it's just completely overlaid with this green and it's soaking out of there and and then they meet like almost looking possessed themselves. You know, you've got the beams shooting from their eyes meeting in the middle. you got the, the ghost coming out. Pay our due. Yeah, the, the, I really, to me, it very much felt like a, like Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like the, yeah, the spirits just flying and hovering around and just being completely creepy. Maybe mixed with some, uh, some of the dead marshes from return of the King or from the two towers. Um, very, very creepy. Uh, and just, the way they move really is creepy. Like, like you said, whenever he's he's trying to push her out of the cave, the way she's just like scratching 
bearing down with her fingers on on the concrete trying to stay out um and and uh just the way they they kind of retained the memories of those they possessed it kind of reminded me of of when ahsoka was possessed during the mortis arc where they're kind of using their history to kind of you know taunt them um it's a really cool sequence and there's another really interesting scene where after Caden and Sabine are possessed and Maul and Ezra are outside the caves and Maul is going to leave and he's really like pleading with Ezra to become his apprentice and come with me. He's like, we can walk this path together as friends, as brothers. And you really get there's a moment where you actually feel kind of sorry for him, like knowing the way he lost uh, his brother Savage. Um, the way you know, he he had been calling Savage apprentice the whole time, but as soon as Savage was stabbed, he went back he went and called him brother again. And you, you, there's a a lot of pain in the way he says brothers, and like there is some twisted layer in his mind where I think he actually does truly care about Ezra and want to be with him and want to give him all he, his knowledge and share with him all he's learned, but just in an evil Sith way. <laughs> yeah. Before these these shows, you know, pe- you know, if if asked, you know, who's your favorite villain, and people would say Maul, I would just kind of roll my eyes and think like, you know, he's uh, he's an awesome design. And if you want to say he's the coolest looking villain, you know, I I might even jump on board that. But but it's a bit ridiculous with just that. But now, just given how much depth, just you know, he's still not my number one. But I really get where people come from now because they've added so many layers and given him such an almost you know this very genuine emotional arc um and i it, it's really crazy how much emotion they're able to place just on the word brothers you know, because we know what that means uh, and like you know my mind is went back to his relationship with savage and how much it meant in that moment in the episode in clone wars where he goes back to referring to him as as his brother as opposed to his apprentice he did the exact same thing here you know like oh ezra my apprentice will return you know, just you know, even as Ezra, you know, shouts that he, he's not, he's still referred to him as that. And for this one final plea in his mind, you know, he's going back to his most basic form of sincerity and calling him his brother. And he really does just want a friend. Uh, you know, it, we, I think we can only assume that in his mind, after he kills Kenobi, he's probably just going to go back to his old ways and try to, to build an empire again. And I, I think he wants that person by his side. Um, and so, yeah, it's, despite the fact that he's truly a deplorable, evil character, there is some sort of of humanity and emotion behind him. Yeah. Next episode is a two-parter. It's, it's a Ghost of Geonosis. It's directed by Mel Zywer and written by Stephen Melching and Matt Mishnovitz. The ghost crew is sent to Geonosis to discover what happened to Saw Gerrera and his team, who were sent to investigate the disappearance of the Geonosian populace. Once there, they enter the caves but are attacked by battle droids. A saw sa- saves them and tells them that all his team was killed. They discover a lone Geonosian who is guarding the last queen egg. They, d- they discover evidence that the Empire gassed the entire population of the planet. We find out what we hear about why in the book Catalyst. Uh, saw is becoming increasingly uh, unhinged and threatens the Geonosian, who they call Clicklack, um, as well as assaulting several of the ghost crew. And, but then an Imperial cruiser shows up and forces the ghost into the tunnels. And then after a brief tussle with jet troopers, the ghost blows up the cruiser and they escape. But they lose the evidence of the Empire's atrocities on the way out. And uh, 
saw magically becomes ice again because it's a kid's show. So yeah, um, we, we come back to Genosis because I forget which episode it was earlier where we are. Uh, it was the Honorable Ones where, where they had gone they had gone over to Genosis and they saw all the, uh, the, uh, the debris left over from constructing the Death Star. And now when they come back, it's all cleaned up. It's really, really spooky. And then when they go in, they find Click Clack and they're trying to ask him what they were doing. He draws in the sand a circle with a smaller circle inside and they think it's an, it's the uh, the Empire, but we know it's actually the Death Star. It's really cool that like it's kind of the, the sharing between him and the audience, but not not the characters. Yeah, that's one of the things that I really loved about this episode and about the Honor ones, because you know at first when they're first looking at this old construction site, and they're like, oh man, whatever they were building was massive, and they never find out. And here again, they they mistake what he was meaning twice here. Um, the first time thinking it's it's the egg, and then the second time thinking it's you know it's it's the the insignia of the empire. And the entire time, it's just up to you to recognize what it is. I, I love that they never have to they never feel like they have to mention it. Well, this is the introduction of Saw to the show, and I, they brought back Forrest Whitaker. I love how in the animation they even gave him the same lazy eye that Forrest Whitaker has. Yeah, it's it's really cool to be able to look at him and. And, you know, obviously his costume and everything and just instantly know who it is. And uh, obviously it helps having the same voice actor. Although I'm assuming this was recorded before they finalized the idea or the the performance in Rogue One because he definitely doesn't have that almost out of breath style of, of talking. Well, he, he lost half his body in between. Oh, that's true. That's true. So never mind. And... I like just how we see just how unhinged. Like he's even worse in uh, in um, Rogue One, but here he's still like dancing on the edge of madness and constantly snapping at them. And like he doesn't even care. He doesn't care that the Geonosians were killed off. He just wants to find out how and why so that can be used as ammunition against the Empire. Like he's completely lost. It seems like he's lost the notion of fighting for a greater good. Like he's not. It doesn't seem like he's actually fighting for something. He just seems to be fighting against the Empire. And, like, he goes, he's, like, he takes the egg hostages, like, pointing his gun at it and, like, attacking the rest of the ghost crew. He's, like, really completely unhinged. He's going to win by destroying what he hates. Or he's going to die. <laughs> yeah, maybe that one. Uh, one of the things that I, I do love about um, about what they do with this character is, you know, but at first, you know, without the show's, he is just kind of this guy who appears in, in the first act of a, of a spinoff. But with the shows, you know, you can, you can really trace an actual arc where the guy here definitely feels like he could be a continuation of the guy we met back on Onderon, um, where he was, you know, maybe less, not less compassionate, although maybe you could use that, but, you know, maybe more inclined to use unconventional means and you know, he, he did not care at all about the perception and, and morale of the citizens. He's like, you know, we're going to blow everything we can up in, in the Clone Wars arc. Um, and here, you know, it, it's like you take that, but but now he no longer has Stila. And I love that they that we get to see Stila yeah. um, in that hologram. Um, so we see that without that kind of moral compass guiding him and, you know, given his own rebel cell in an unorganized government that doesn't exactly have to watch over him, uh, he's able to operate the way he wants to operate and and allow himself to become unhinged like he does. Mm-hmm. And I like how this this episode, these two episodes, they humanize the Genosans. Like 
up till now they've always been like super scared of they everybody calls them bugs and like the way they fight is creepy just everything about them is so different and foreign and they've always been the enemy but now we our crew is there protecting them um it was this is just kind of a cool twist and it's done very believably and they found a way to make them very sympathetic and you know the, now they're, they're trying to ensure the survival of the race that was like one of the, our most bitter enemies in the clone wars yeah and i i do you know agree with you that it does feel maybe a little bit jarring for um for saw to just kind of turn around and be you know the good guy again some you know at the end but i feel i'm i'm more okay with it in this case as opposed to like the last three cases we've talked about <laughs> just because you know they do have that backstory to rely on they do have the family angle to play up and they, you know, to be able to point out that, you know, this egg is Stila to this Geonosian. And if you're wanting to fight the Empire for what they did to you, allow the Geonosian to live, you know, and like I said, it's, it feels rushed, but it doesn't feel like a development that couldn't believably happen with this character. You know, maybe with a longer arc, they could flush it out more. Um, and kind of pace it out in a way that that makes more sense, but he it it still feels like you know they kind of gave themselves that out because of of his background, um, and it it wasn't an entirely complete like turnaround in terms of just his tactics overall. You know the episode still kind of ends with with Hera and Kanan explaining it, uh, to Ezra. You know like not everyone's gonna fight like us. Not everyone's even gonna have the morals we have. You know, but that's just kind of the state we're in. And I like how it's Ezra is the one who first starts befriending Click Clack. Uh, like, you know, Kanan, Saw, and Rex all have reason, you know, to fear and hate his kind. But for Ezra, you know, he's just like any other alien. And he immediately, you know, pities him. And he's the one who opens up that kind of that relationship that slowly develops. And which slowly each one kind of finally comes to accept him as a person. And then just talking about, like, the, the portrayal of... Um... Of, of Ezra and Saw here where they're constantly at odds did you feel like they the rest of the crew almost allowed Saw to get too rough and just kind of stood by passively for a bit you know obviously they react when he, he gets the egg and he puts a gun up to it but there are moments where he's just kind of like throwing the Geonosian around and they're like hey stop that don't do that but they're just kind of standing idly by as he really roughs him up I guess no one wants to be the one to poke the crazy guy <laughs> Yeah, maybe true. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, Kanan and um, Rex, having both fought them, they might be able to look at them and be like, oh, he's going overboard, but I'm not about to stick my neck out for a bugger, yeah. I guess. You know, you could think that. Um, but, yeah, I almost had flashbacks. Of the, you know, or it kind of reminded me of, of the two towers, you know, with the way they're just completely roughing around Gollum and oh, yeah. kind of getting that sympathetic feel from from the audience just kind of having to sit down and, and watch this defenseless creature beaten up and then b before we move on uh, one of the last things we haven't really talked about the i guess the b plot that's happening outside with the the droids being reactivated but you know during we have that storm that clogs up all the machinery and as they're making their escape you know they have limited guns and thrusters because uh, as Sabine says, stupid sand stuff gets everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it whenever they're able to kind of like pick up on, on lines that really stick with people. And 
you know, it, the the Clone Wars did the same with Colin, you know, spinning a good trick. <laughs> the next episode is Warhead, and this is directed by Bosco and G and written by Gary Witta. Um, so while left alone with AP5 and Chopper and in charge of Chopper Base, Zeb discovers what appears to be an old protocol droid that was attacked by the giant spiders on Adalon. Upon reactivation, AP realizes his usefulness and begins showing the droid around. Zeb receives a transmission from Fulcrum who informs him of undercover Imperial, dro uh, Imperial probes uh, disguised as protocol droids that have been sent out in search of the base. He tells him that one failed to report in, causing Zeb to realize that's uh, the droid he discovered. Zeb, Chopper, and AP are eventually able to subdue the droid and send it back to the Empire where, upon arrival, it self-destructs. Despite this victory, Thrawn is pleased as he's able to further narrow down his search for the rebel base. And my favorite thing about this is AP5's utter loathing for Zeb. <laughs> I always assume you're with the, the lift heavy things and punch anything in your way type, you know? <laughs> The grunt. So what exactly is it that you do? Then Chopper says something. He said, we've never really figured that out. <laughs> yeah, it's, this is kind of another just bottle episodes. It kind of comes and goes. But these can be fun when you've got dynamics that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And there's a lot of lines like that that I think are funny in this episode. Zab's like, counting crates? That's not exactly my idea of fun. Is that because you can't count? I can teach you. <laughs> <laughs> just every line from AP5 is just demeaning Zeb, and it's kind of hilarious. And of course, it's beautifully read with that Alan Rickman kind of voice. Yeah. Um, but another thing, cool thing is that the, uh, the infiltrator droid, or whatever he's called, is pretty much like beat for beat the design, uh, Ralph McQuarrie's original design for C3PO. Oh, wow. That, I did not know that. That's cool. Uh, one of the things that I liked a lot about it was just the very opening was very much like a tonal and almost visual recreation of the beginning of Empire Strikes Back. Yes, yes. Where, yes. I, I think they even reused the music, that kind of mysterious, slow kind of music, and we just see the probes drop, and we are on. We see it from the perspective of the planet and hit the ground. Uh, I always like it when they kind of just spiritually recreate scenes like that. But then the, uh, the joy transforms, and it's this super crazy, like, us, like you know the, the commando droids are super agile and scary like this is like that on steroids and then there's a sequence like after he's wounded and they're following him around it, it turns like basically into a monster movie where they're, they're, they're chasing around camp trying they're following his bloody trail and then they find like another droid that has guts ripped out where the uh the droid uh the infiltrator is repairing itself it, it's like it's like coming upon the kill of the monster you're chasing like the wolfman or something and they go and they find him. When they finally find the droid, he's like hunched over another droid, where he's ripping his guts. Out. It's like taking all the the you know the visual cues of a classic monster movie and, and applying it here. Yeah, and it works well for me just because I really you know I I love the design that they have when he does transform into that. It is you know just super acrobatic, and you almost wonder why the Empire doesn't use more of these. But just the design itself, like the way the arms and the legs elongate. Um, and, and like all of the machinery is just kind of hid behind this shell that's meant to look um, pleasant and normal. Uh, it's it's a cool design, and the the actual head of the thing. I think it's the same uh, design as the droid that chases them um, in a later episode that we'll see with uh, with Mon Mothma. And so, 
to see that they you know they're using this design and they carry it throughout kind of the way they did with the assassin droids it's cool to see <laughs> another great quote is uh when zeb's trying to think he's like i've got an idea really you can have those <laughs> i feel like uh ap is just your uh your spirit animal i guess your spirit droid yeah pretty much or <laughs> it's like think zeb think this might take a while <laughs> Yeah, so they find out the 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 probe, the probe is actually a bomb, and they are able to delay, to reprogram it to send it back and to blow up the the destroyer that it was sent to, that it was sent from. And it's a really cool explosion where it, we have a uh, Callus and some other I think some other officer kind of looking at each other at a window's behind them, and it just the the ship blows up through the window. It's just a kind of we you know, we see some explosions, but that one was really really cool framing. And I love that as it blows up, you just. The perspective shifts back to Callus, uh, and we see him in the camera. Is he just kind of has this little smirk because he knows what's happened? And then you know, returning to Thrawn's brilliance, I love how it kind of, it ends for the rebels as if, yeah, it's a victory. They sent an infiltrator, but we we sent it back and blew up their ship. But now Thrawn knows that they're that they're on one of the ninety three planets that they sent an infiltrator droid on. It's like he's able to take everything they do and turn it against them. Yeah, it, it reminds me of you know when we were complaining about season one where. Every episode was a victory. And in this, you know, they're really having to fight for victories now. It's rare that we end with everything wrapping up perfectly just because it, it seems like we're consistently cutting back to Thrawn who's somehow finding a way to... Uh, and he, he's not spinning anything. He's not like, oh, well, I guess I could find a victory. It's like he, he truly does seem very pleased with the way everything kind of wraps up. And one last uh, AP5 quote after uh, Zeb comes up with the idea to send the droid back. It's like, oh... Sorry about my delayed response. I was just rather stunned with that you actually had a good idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I never realized just how much I love this character until this episode. That next episode is Trials of the Dark Saber. This is directed by Stuart Lee and written by Dave Filoni. So here we have Kanan decides to teach Sabine how to use the Dark Saber, so hopefully she can wield it and unite Mandalore to fight against the Empire. The, the Dark Saber has this powerful symbolism for mandalore um, but sabine wants nothing to do with it but finally eventually agrees to train so kanan sabine and ezra they set up a separate camp where kanan begins to teach her uh how to wield a lightsaber uh, but it's really slow going sabine's stubbornness and refusal to face her past clashes with the increasingly extreme training tactics from kanan finally at the end sabine is able to open up about her past and that allows her to fight at her fullest with the lightsaber um, in the end she accepts her duty to return to her family and to try to convince them to join the rebellion. This uh, this episode opens up with a really cool uh, scene where Fen Rao tells Kanan the history of the Darksaber. We get this kind of cool 2D animation on the wall uh, showing uh, that it was made by Tar Vizsla, who was the first Mandalorian Jedi and how it was stolen by uh, Clan Vizsla. Uh, and they use it to reunite Man Mandalore. It's this really cool uh, animation kind of showing that happening in the background. So I thought that was super cool, but that I wasn't sure how much that fit in with Star Wars, like that that kind of stylized. I don't care. It's awesome. <laughs> All right, I'll go along with it because it was cool. Yeah. Um, and this is where Sabine becomes an absolutely fantastic character. Um, you know, they had hints and bits and pieces in a couple moments, like whenever whenever she met Mandalorians again, like it was like her true self would come out. Um, but here. We have where Kanan is teaching her how to wield the, the dark saber, and and it's, it's one of those episodes where it's like the entire 
uh, episode takes place at this one camp with with the separate, and he's just going through all the, the teach the, the rounds of teaching where he has Ezra show her how to um all the different lightsaber stances and the, the basic moves. And I love I love how, how how proud Ezra is that he finally knows something more than someone else, and he's like really enjoying that fact. But he actually is he, he he's, he's not gloating. He's actually a really good teacher. But you can tell he's quite happy to finally know something more than Sabine. Yeah, I, I love it whenever he's first teaching her through the stances and he's like okay do this are you doing this are, are, okay are you ready and it's like he's he you can feel his inexperience but like you said it's not this like all right hurry up like you know i'm waiting um i think he's just genuinely happy to be able to to teach her and it, it, it all seems very benevolent and like he's doing it all with very good spirits just like oh boy you know i, I get to teach sabine now um and he kind of just reverts back to being a little boy though but I do like what they do with his character where, you know, he kind of gets upset with her for a little bit and then he comes around, you know, despite the fact that this is very much Sabine's episode. Um, he's not just like this. He doesn't just revert to, to the, a completely one note character. Yeah. And we get something re- really interesting kind of dark turn from Kane in this episode where when he's he's incredibly rough and almost borderline cruel with Sabine when he's training her, like when they're doing the sword fight, he's actually like beating her up and yelling at her and like you know he 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 first tries he first tries to train her himself but then he gets frustrated with her and basically hands her off to Ezra and then like every time he he goes to train her he's getting more and more kind of ruthless with her but the, the, they later on they brought up an interesting point was that that there seems to be a, a an actual force connection between a lightsaber and its wielder and it actually that a really cool quote where he says where they go back to a more original trilogy concept of all creatures have the force. It's but but it's just that more. It's not it's not necessarily the midichlorians. It's, it's more that all creatures have it, but certain people are more gifted with it. And so Sabine still, by being so closed off, being so Mandalorian, and not allowing herself to reckon with the past, she is essentially closing herself off from truly connecting with with the dark saber and becoming one with it. And it was cool. He was talking about how it, she said it's heavier than I thought. He says, he says that as you wield it, it becomes lighter. As the, it becomes one with your body, and there's another cool a bit of lightsaber lore with the when they would clash, the sa- the saber blades would try to stick together, like just the energy is uh, kind of drawing itself to each to 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 the other one, and that that really kind of explains why the Jedi would always go into that kind of clench. Like every every fight, they would do it several times, and they kind of clench, like each one pressing on the other side. And it makes sense now that, that every time they clashed, the sabers would kind of stick to each other. Like really cool bits of explanation and, and lightsaber lore that I've never heard before. Yeah, it, on, I think after this episode, I just kind of like started rethinking about all of the different duels, and I think this episode like retroactively made every awesome lightsaber duel even more awesome. Like you just apply this knowledge to them all, and and one of the things that I really liked. As I, I have always very much been opposed to this idea that that it was silly or out of character that Yoda would use a lightsaber in Attack of the Clones or that, you know, Sidious would be above it. You know, they're just, they're too connected to the Force to be able to be constrained by these physical weaponry. And I love that they apply the Force to the weapons themselves. You know, as, as you become more comfortable with it, as you become more attuned with the Force, it'll become lighter. It's almost like an extension of you. So... Whenever Dooku says to Yoda, uh, to Yoda, you know this must be uh, settled by our skill with the lightsaber. 
uh, that means something. It's not just okay, who's got better technique? You know, it's still it's still to a certain extent a test of of your proficiency mm-hmm. with the force. Um, and I think it actually does borrow a bit from some EU lore, where they said um, much of the Jedi's proficiency with the blade and their connection to it does come from a connection with the force. Uh, and so it's cool to see that here in, in Disney canon and to to make the lightsabers more than just a, a physical weapon. Uh, and it it would also make sense, you know, just thinking about other scenes. Why, you know, when when Finn picks it up, he's just so clumsy with it, um, or that whenever Luke kind of gives in almost a bit to the dark side, instead of instead of you know kind of fighting one hand, or even you know looking like it, it's it's light whenever he strikes out at Vader and he's just bringing it down like he's almost holding, you know, this massive Claymore sword. Uh, you know, obviously not filmed with that lore in mind, but you just kind of rethink about, uh, uh, rethink all of these scenes through. and The lightsaber is like molding itself to the to the, uh, the wielder's mood and, and mental state. And uh, just say, it, it's weird, you know, like you said, this episode is almost confined entirely to, to one location. And yet, if this isn't my very favorite, this is one of my favorite episodes of, of this entire season. Mm-hmm. I, like you said, it actually turns to be not just into a character, but a, a genuinely great character. I love that, you know, Hera starts to call out on Kanan, or uh, call Hanan out on, on some of the stuff of, just, you know, being unwilling to train him like he did Ezra. And she's, she's saying, you know, you're scared because she's, she's not a force user. She's not a Jedi like Ezra was. And he, you know, he he gets defensive, but I think there's a little bit of truth in it too, where he's like, no, it's it's not even just that, it's that she's so Mandalorian, uh, and I've never been forced to have the patience to have to to deal with something like this. It, it's almost like she's making training an actual impossibility. And so to see there these two different kinds of people, this this Jedi with the Jedi virtues, with the Mandalorian and everything that comes with that. To, to kind of clash throughout the episode is really cool. Yeah, because Ezra wanted to learn. Sabine does not want to be there. And, like, she, he has to have her open up herself so much that she can, you know, create what little connection to the Force she has as, as a living creature. Like, she, like she again, I'm assuming she's completely closed off to any kind of Force connection now with how tightly she's clamped down her emotions in her past. And uh, there's, a, there's a scene where... Uh, I just love there's so many cool interpersonal relationships that happen in this where like there's a moment where she just gets blows up at Kanan and like she's they separate and Ezra goes and kind of commiserates with her. She's like like she's she's afraid to go back to Mandalore to face her family because they all think she's a traitor. And it's just like, well, at least you have a family to go back to. It was like, whoa, really like a really intimate burn from him. This is another crazy scene where a fan uh, gives her these uh, Mandalorian van braces that were designed with all these tricks and gadgets that were designed to to fight to combat Jedi, and she you know takes out Ezra, and then Kanan comes in and she uses like a, this Force whip or something, uh, like a, a Electro whip, and he just cuts it and throws her to the ground. He's like history lesson: the Jedi won the war with Mandalorian. He just like lays out on her about how she ha- like, you can't win off tricks. You have to you have to build the discipline. And the training yourself, and because if you rely on tricks, if they ever fail you, you're doomed. And it's just he's like taking it's almost like he's taking a page from the J.K. Simmons uh, school of teaching in Whiplash. <laughs> like he's just like super ruthless and brutal with it. like everything she does. Whenever she whenever she tries to to rely on a trick 
rather than true truly connecting with the dark saber he just like slaps her down and it's it's kind of hard to watch is about to say there's there's so much tension in this episode and like you were mentioning earlier there's a lot of different interpersonal and different dynamics going on between each individual character where you know you've got Ezra kind of trying to stick up for for Kanan you know when he's saying you know he he wants the best and he means well he's just trying to get you there and and he's being mostly you know polite with Sabine uh, and then you have Sabine and Fen Rao developing kind of like a really cool friendship off on the sidelines during the episode. Take Bridget down a few notches. Yeah, I love that line because you know, he's getting a bit cocky with his his lightsaber skills. And, you know, after that happens, he kind of gets just a smidge upset with her there. Uh, and then you get that moment where Kanan just throws her down and berates her. You know, at, at first, you know, you as the audience are kind of with Kanan. And you're getting frustrated with Sabine. And then when that happens, you really, like, it feels like our emotional point of view starts switching over to Sabine. And now we feel, you know, like, like her this entire time. Who just feels like she's being forced to do something she doesn't want to do. And and she reluctantly agrees to it and is now being punished for the fact that she's not good enough for it. It's, it's a lot of emotional stuff going on. And then we come to the last fight, which I, I think is one of the best moments of the entire series at this point. Whenever he, but before that, I think she talks to the Bendu. Oh, that's right. When they, 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 they you know, after after he yells at her, they both kind of break up, and she walks out, and then we see her walk past a rock, and then it kind of opens up, and we see it's the Bendu, and then she kind of comes back calmer, and you know, offering again to fight with Kanan, and like I love that we don't see what he said, but something happened there. It's it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, and then I, 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 real quick before we talk about that that fight scene. It is cool, just uh, the van braces. It, it feels like so much of that we actually saw, like an Attack of the Clones, with the way Django fought Obi Wan on Kamino and stuff, and, and and the Clone Wars too. Yeah, and, and so to be able to to see that and to hear it explained, where it's like, yeah, every every device here, all of the tricks up your sleeve, this was designed for the purpose of fighting a Jedi. So now all of a sudden, all these Mandalorians being able to hold their own doesn't seem quite as ridiculous as it might have before. But then. Getting to the fight, though, there is just so much emotion in that scene. And, and when Kanan just start, you know, saying, calls her a coward and she ran away. And every time he says something, it's weird because he's not exactly just trying to elicit an angry reaction from her. You know, because as a Jedi, he's not trying to have her fight with anger, but really he's just he's using it to draw out her real reasons for closing everyone off and for refusing to do this and and by kind of you know person like seemingly personally attacking her he's just forcing her to come to grips with stuff she might not even be admitting in her own head and so with every strike and every acknowledgement we get from her about her past it's like this entire episode has made her a better character but it, it was that scene where i was like okay like she is a genuine character you know arguably in one scene, almost as well-developed as, as some of the rest of the cast. And so well done. What he's doing is he's taunting her with lies, you know, in order to force her to come out with the truth. Like, you know, everything he says, like, it's, it's like a barbed insult that's, like, partially true that she knows she is also, she's also feared and struggled with. But it, but it's also a, it kind of twisted into a hurtful lie. And he keeps attacking her with that until she finally has to come out and defend herself and project out the real truth. But before they, like, when they first get together, 
and and they're going through like they're going through the different lightsaber uh, positions and they, they do it like four times and each one gets a little faster and Kenny gets a little more uh aggressive and it just it's such a gorgeously shot sequence um it, it again it, you know, it feels like live action just such so beautifully directed and just the way the the music and the emotion of the scene where it's just going over the f- same different same moves it's like slowly faster and faster each time it just draws you in and it's just kind of mesmerizing um but then after once he starts taunting her, I love that he he turns his lightsaber off and she's like coming at him with the lightsaber and he's just dodging and punching her or like you know, just using his bare hands. He like he doesn't even have to to fight her. And it just kind of goes on and on, and just builds and builds until finally she um she just breaks and kind of count uh, it takes counters all his lies he's been saying about her and really says the truth about why she doesn't want to go back to Mandalore. As far as like basically what she says is she had designed weapons for the for the empire that the empire then turned and used on the mandalorians but then she tried to stand up and you know inform tell the mandalorians what was happened and try to push back against the empire her family chose the empire instead of her and that's why she fled and now they view her as a traitor for 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 for, for, for you know for standing up for mandalore she stood up for mandalore against the empire and now they think she's a traitor and it's it's just a really powerful which as she finally lets it all out she's able to connect to the dark saber and takes Kanan down it's it's such a beautifully emotional scene it's so good yeah and the vocal performances are fantastic you know as she's shouting after every blow it's like everything I did was my or for my family everything I did was for Mandalore um you just you feel the the emotion coming from her and then you know when she breaks down by the end of it you know I I felt emotional I was like, you know, I've, n- I've never really been able to connect with this character before, and yet now I've, I feel like I just got an entire season's worth of development that came naturally through, a, you know, a singular episode. Yeah, but also her and uh, Freddie Prince Jr. as Kanan is so good. The, the vocal performance, it's like every line he said was like, I, I gotta write that down. That is so cool. And just the delivery and just how angry and powerful he becomes as the episode goes is really stunning. Uh, this might... I don't know. Like uh, Twilight of the Apprentice is up there, but th- this is up there with Twilight of the, of the Apprentice as like favorite in the entire season and for the entire series. Probably the most emotional we get maybe during during this season. So the next episode is Legacy of Mandalore, and this is directed by Mel Zauer and written by Christopher Yost. Uh, aboard the Phantom, Sabine, Ezra, Kanan, Fenrau, and Chopper set out for Crown Est home to the Clan Wren, to recruit them for the Rebellion. The Phantom is damaged by Mandalorians, um, led by Sabine's brother Tristan, when landing, and Ezra, Sabine, and Kanan are led to the stronghold to meet Sabine's mother, Ursa, while Chopper and Fen hide in case of emergency. Fen discovers that Sabine's mother had already contacted leader of Mandalore, Gar Saxon, and told him that rebels, including two Jedi, are here. Gar and his men show up and stand ready to kill all of Clan Wren and the rebels, but Fen bursts through the window, returning the lightsabers to the Jedi. Sabine bests Saxon in a duel, but refuses to kill him. However, Saxon attempts to kill Sabine when she turns her back on him, but is shot by Ursa. Sabine informs Ezra and Kanan that she will not be going back with them, but must stay behind and help reunite her people. And this proves, I think, once and for all, that Mandalorians are just jerks. (laughs) Like, they've always been so frustrating, but this really takes it to another level. Like when they go, they return to um, to the uh, 
she returns to her family and they're just all cold and distant and they like, they pretend they're going to uh they, they're gonna you know allow them to be there and consider what they have to say then she then then uh ursa sabine's mother goes and betrays the jedi to gar Saxon. she's just like they're just so irritatingly and in, in a realistic and good way but they're just so frustrating in how consumed they are in traditions and just how they don't even have a concept of morality outside of protecting the family yeah and i, I love at first you know whenever for the first time seeing her daughter in years first thing she does you know like take her away and she'll stand trial and sabine even notes that you know that goes better than she expected so yeah I, this episode is not as good as a uh, trials of the dark saber but i I do like the episode as a whole quite a bit. And one of the things that I really like about it is that it shows that Sabine wasn't just a, a good character within the episode of Trials of the Dark Saber. You know, that this is, they've made genuine developments with her character and this is going to kind of help define who she is going forward. So I like her a lot in this episode as well. Um, so it's just cool to see that, you know, from now on, it's actually not too much to expect her to, to have some sort of arc or to 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 be an actual personality and character with the rest of the crew now i like that there's there there were consequences for sabine leaving like the uh it's like she she made it out to the empire and she broke that so like the status of um clan ren is now kind of in question and the other clans all look down on them and that tristan now has to serve with gar saxon to basically to prove the loyalty of the family and it's like their entire status was destroyed by um, her leaving. So it, it makes sense for them to be angry with her. And there's a cool scene where she's uh, sparring with Tristan. And you kind of get just like the little bits of bitterness between them as they're kind of sparring. Um, just, I, I, like, I said, they're incredibly frustrating characters dramatically. But it's still, it's in a good way. Like, it, it makes sense. And it, it's, it gives us a lot of uh, material, dramatic material to work through. Yeah, and that's one of the things I love about this episode is how much time it dedicates to just conversations. Most of this episode is an action. It's just it's having to exist and work through this family drama, all of the stuff that's been pent up for so long. And, you know, obviously it's a 22-minute episode, so there's only so much time they can dedicate it to it. But the fact that they did have that time constraint and still felt like they delivered on, you know, a, a fairly compelling family drama i think is a testament to to how how well they are in, in storytelling um and then just there's a lot about this episode that i like in terms of the way it was directed and shot uh there's a really great uh shot that is one of the most memorable to me from the series when they're leading them to the stronghold and it's just this huge wide shot that covers the trail leading to the stronghold and it's it kind of covers the entire left side of the frame and we, we just hold on it for like a solid five seconds and all we hear is the wind blowing and the tiny specks of the people walking towards it. It almost reminds me of like one of the big landscape shots that they have in like Empire Strikes Back where it almost feels like just a painting. Um, it, it was really cool. And there's a couple of moments where they just, the, the framing of the shot feels very meticulous and cool. And, and the fact that they're willing to hold on it for as long as they do is, is pretty cool. And I, I love that they... they ursa betrayed uh sabine and Kanan and ezra to gar saxon but he came he just wants to use this as an excuse to wipe out the clan you know to to heighten his um his uh stature he's gonna kill them all because hey look oh th there's rebels in your house well obviously you're rebel sympathizers so i'll just kill you all although it's kind of stupid that he only brought three guys 
and he's like easily like outnumbered two to one, but he's gonna walk into somebody else's house and announce that he's gonna kill them with when they have more people and they have Jedi. I don't know. Not not a great plan. <laughs> However, I do like when um he takes the dark saber and Ezra throws her uh his green lightsaber and they start battling out in the ice. It reminded me a bit of a Batman Begins. That's what I was thinking as well. Yeah. And uh, the, uh, the, like the, it's a really fierce, brutal fight. And both of them are using all of their gadgets against each other. So finally, she beats him, and uh, he, then he tries to kill her. And Ursa shoots him. Just a really like you know, it's, it's not quite Charles the Dark Saber, but it's still a very satisfying episode. Yeah, and, and you know, despite the fact that I, I'm not sold on the way he joins, Fenrir is like becoming one of my favorite side characters. Oh yeah. Uh, the moment he he just kind of jumps through the window and throws the sabers, like this guy is cool. Like he's. He's becoming, you know, one of the characters that I'm really going to walk away with, like, remembering from the series. Uh, and one last thing, one of the things that I thought was really cool is that Sabine shows up with a dark saber, kind of expecting this is enough. You know, I wield it, therefore it's it's enough, this this beacon. And when Ursa calls her out on it, you know, like, you weren't able to retrieve it during combat. You know, anyone could have picked it up. Uh, and it foreshadows, you know, the fact that it eventually falls into the hands of Gar Saxon. And so she ha- she has to fight who is essentially, you know, functioning as the owner of the Darksaber. And so now she she can say that she won it through combat. It is no longer just her by happenstance, but she she won it in in a Mandalorian duel. And so the fact that they kind of set up that, you know, the fact that it's one thing to wield it, it's another to have actually have won it. And then to see her do that, I thought was really cool. It reminds me a lot of some of the wand lore and the waiting wands that happens in a Harry Potter, which you should read. I'll get to it, I promise. <laughs> um, yeah, and so it ends with Sabine deciding to stay on Mandalore with her family to help and build the rebellion. Actually, it's not Mandalore. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, one of Mandalore's moves. Crownus. Crownus, yeah. She decides to stay on the planet, and uh, which I, I love. It's like they're, they're really the characters are branching out now. She's leaving the ghost crew. She's not going to be regular anymore because she has this bigger purpose and destiny now, which is so cool for a character that I couldn't care less about in season one and two. Yeah, and, and not even only that, just like the first half of this whole season. What, what's so amazing is it without Trials of the Darksaber, this is like, oh, I mean, I never cared about her anyways. I guess see you later, Sabine. And with one episode, now this is like a genuinely emotional goodbye. You know, and one that feels earned, despite the fact that it, it, it came out, out after just a single episode, it feels like this is a natural conclusion for a character all of a sudden. And so it's just super impressive that they're able to to make so many strides with their character in so little time and have it all feel organic. Yeah. And the next episode is Through Imperialized. It's directed by Saul Ruiz and written by Nicole Dubuck. Um, we start with Callus coming across a captured Ezra, AP5, and Chopper. Ezra says that they think the Empire is onto Kallus and that they are here to extract him. But Thrawn shows up and has them trans- transferred over to his own ship, which means they're going to have to steal new clearance codes uh, so that the rescue team of uh, Kanan and Rex can get onto Thrawn's ship instead. So Kallus frees Ezra and they infiltrate Thrawn's office to, e- to get the codes and to erase the location of the rebel base. And Kallus frames Lieutenant List for the infiltration. Um, and through some even through even more trickery, they escape. But Callus decides to stay behind, believing that he has successfully framed uh, List as Fulcrum. Something something funny about this episode. 
uh, I usually end up buying these through Amazon or I uh, or iTunes and, and stream them, but I, I bought this uh, and watched it on physical copies, and I opened the box up whenever I first went up to watch it, and I didn't bother looking, I just put in the first disc, and so I watched this episode to completion thinking it was a season three premiere. <laughs> Uh, I had to go back and rewatch it in the proper context. But what's really funny is, oddly enough, this episode works fairly well as a premiere. Um, like opening with a POV shot feels like you know, like it's a, it's just kind of a cool thing to do to start this new season off. Um, and whenever we first see Ezra, it feels like a, a character introduction for a season. Like when he first bursts through and they pull the helmet off, and it's we see Ezra with short hair. And he's like, what are you doing, Imperial Scum? And then, you know, the revelation that that uh, Callus is full chrome. It feels like it's just this clever dialogue to, to catch the audience up over a season. But anyways, yeah, it, it took me quite a bit to, to realize, uh, two episodes actually, to realize that I was on the wrong disc. And I, I love the interplay between Callus and uh, Ezra. Like like after they capture him and Callus is like, all right, I'll interrogate, I'll interrogate him alone. And then he walks and he just kind of loses. Like, what are you doing here? On Ezra, um, and the, 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 they try to figure, figure out what's going on, and then Ezra grabs Cal's hand and has him punch him to appear like that he's interrogating him. And then later on, when Callus goes to um, rescue Ezra, he walks into the cell and it's empty. He's like, he looks at the ceiling, will you stop that? And Ezra <laughs> jumps down off the ceiling. The yellow o has always been able to give him like the sense of nobility uh, and honor. But he's always had to, for the most part, play, really play it straight with the character. So it's cool to get to see, to see him get to really have fun with him and and give him a, this kind of personality that we haven't really been able to see. Not that it, it feels different for the character. It's just he's never really been in a situation where he's having to wing it like the <laughs> rebels, and he's finally like actively like voicing all this frustration that he never could do with the empire. Yeah. Um- and this whole episode plays out like a Cold War thriller where everyone suspects everyone and they're all walking out. Like every line of dialogue has double meanings. It, we get uh, the return of uh, Admiral Ularin from who's now actually Colonel Ularin now with the ISB, which kind of broke my heart because I really liked Ularin and Tom Kane is such a soothing voice for him. But apparently he joined the Empire and uh, it's sad, but uh, it's good to see him again. Yeah, it broke my heart, but in a way that it should have. And I was like, I kind of applaud that. That they're they're reusing this character and and not everybody that we liked in the Republic during the Clone Wars really is gonna stay you know loyal to the true Republic and so I thought it was kind of cool that you know he he stayed over as it as it crossed over to the Empire and so seeing this older more seasoned Ularan who apparently you know had Callus as his you know star pupil uh, I thought that was a really cool way to reintroduce him into the show. I just love the way Callus like slowly frames Lieutenant List too. I kind of feel sorry for her. <laughs> just using his uh whatever whatever that that uh, data stick they use to to sneak into Thrawn's office and which is like, a cool you know, idea itself. Yeah, and and, and then telling him you know just by, just between you and me, I think it's a it's a, it's a Governor Price. He's like, oh really? Well then I guess I'll go get her. And and just the way he plays it the whole time until finally at the end where um. He gets list to stun Price, and then grabs him. All right, I've got you, Fulcrum. <laughs> it is kind of kind of sad seeing List being led away like that. What's really funny, uh, we you and I watched uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang together, and there's a moment where, 
Like, it, there's a bunch of different people together in one scene, and there's, like, three different <laughs> layers of what's going on. This? Uh, I, I forget which scene it is in the movie. I just, I know... It like, could be half the movie. Exactly, well, that's the thing. <laughs> like, the entire movie is just, like, playing with who knows what and who thinks who is who, and... I just I just remember there's a moment where you you were just think you just like notably or you you noted that and you're just like there's so much going on in the scene and that's kind of what I thought of maybe you know obviously to a lesser extent because it's only a 22 minute episode of a cartoon show but I I thought something similar during that last scene where it's that they make Price look like she's Fulcrum for uh for List and then they end up making like which in turn has List looking like he's Fulcrum, and now all of a sudden, Callus is the hero arresting Fulcrum, but he's Fulcrum the whole time. So there's so, like, there really are so many different layers, and depending on what point of view we're at, so-and-so is supposed to be this other person, and this other person is supposed to be this person, and logically it all makes sense in your head, too. It's not like, okay, that person should be thinking this. And it like It's just the situation was manipulated so perfectly that, that everything kind of plays out exactly as it should. <laughs> And I love when, uh, when Price goes and confronts Kanan and uh, Rex in Stormtrooper armor. And he, and he goes to do the force trick on her. He, she's just like, shoot him. <laughs> the second she sees the hand come up. Another thing, I like, we get a whole other dimension to uh, Thrawn. Is we come in and he's training with these uh, guard robots. with like with a Training in martial arts or whatever. And and then later on, when uh, he comes in on the room and... And uh, Callus and Ezra and they're getting the information. Callus turns on the guard droids, and we get a really cool fight where uh, Thrawn has to uh, combat his own guard droids and take them down, uh, bare, basically barehanded. And uh, I, I love that not only is he a warrior with his mind, but he knows he knows well enough to um he know he knows he should also have his body ready, and that he is a you know a master of martial arts. And I love just the way he fights. His his fighting style feels so smooth and calculated, like like you would if you were that that intelligent. Yeah, it feels very much like a a physical representation of his intellect. The way he fights, uh, almost not not nearly as stylized, but kind of how you you know Sherlock Holmes fights in the Guy Ritchie movies, where it's it's not all about show. It's just how to get things done in a very efficient, smooth manner. Yeah. Uh, and that scene in the office is so tense whenever Ezra hides behind the, the wall art that they have of Sabine's there and uh, he's constantly trying to inch closer to the other side and get out the door. Uh, I, I, I was holding my breath pretty much for the entirety of it. Just a really great spy thriller in, in 22 minutes. Yeah, and you know, other than that, that very ending scene, which hardly even constitutes as a fight, this one really is all about the dialogue, like you were saying. Like it's, it's all about creating a sense of paranoia, uh, about who's who and how, how are they going to get out, and so many different things going on, and they're able to maintain like a genuine level of excitement and and intrigue without ever relying on just you know really cool flashy action scenes. And despite that brilliant frame up, Callus does at the end. We realize that a uh, Thrawn Thrawn still knows it's Callus, but which makes that that scene so. Like the scene where they, they finally, they're finally about to escape, like, yes! And, and Kyle's like, no, I'm going to stay. I can do more good here. It's like, no, you're this close. And then the very next scene, like, they, they already suspect Kalos. It's like, he leaves you with such a sick feeling in your stomach. They don't even give us an episode to be able to reap the benefits of, of Kalos being on the inside. So the next episode is Secret Cargo. This one is directed by Bosco NG and written by Matt Mishnovets. Um, at the request of Senator Organa, 
Ezra, Hera, Zeb, and Chopper wait aboard the Ghost to refuel an unknown ship coming through. As they learn of Senator Mon Mothma openly speaking out against the Emperor through the holonet, they discover a probe droid in the area and give chase, destroying it. Just then, the ship arrives and the Ghost attaches itself to their cruiser to begin refueling. They are then attacked by the Empire and are forced to jump to light speed still attached, where it is revealed that the reason for the secrecy is the, pres the presence of Senator Mothma. With Mon Mothma determined to reach her destination, the rebels attempt to fly through a dangerous nebula, something Thrawn anticipates, and dispatches ships on the other side to wait for her. Upon exit of the nebula, Hera and Mothma are caught in a tractor beam, but Ezra and leader of Gold Squadron, Vandar, fire torpedoes at the nebula, causing a reaction that destroys the Star Destroyer. Mon Mothma is then able to successfully transmit her message, uniting a larger rebel alliance. So one of the, the first cool things that I noticed about this episode, uh, I guess not noticed, you know, it's, it's very obvious, was the, the presence of Gold Squadron, you know, <laughs> yeah. considering we get to see them again in A New Hope and, and then again in Rogue One, um, to see them, I guess their chronological introduction to the Rebellion here is, is really cool. And they, they got Gold Leader from A New Hope and the facial design is kind of the same, it's, it's pretty cool. And I love the, just the way this opens up with so much secrecy, like they're on a mission they're like they're, it's just like they're little cogs in a greater machine. You know, they're they're there to refuel this this unknown ship. They, it's all just on a need to know basis, and it feels very realistic. I like that once they're forced to join together and with Gold Squadron, the the uh, Alder the Alderon people kind of resent how troublesome the Ghost Crew is. Like pretty much every victory they have over the Empire makes the Empire you know have tighter security and, and work all the harder to catch every other rebel cells. So like by being so successful, they're making it harder on everyone else. And there's this kind of tension between them. Yeah. And it's also cool to see them put the protagonists of our show in that position. You know, you refer to them as just for us, they're the leads, you know, they might as well be the head of the rebellion. But now in the bigger picture, in the grand scheme of things, they are just cogs in a machine. Um, and so to be forced to kind of be put in that position, wanting to, to lead the charge, but realizing that, you know, right now, all you've got to do is your part, which may be smaller than you want. Uh, it's a cool place to put, like, who at this point we've just kind of seen as the face of the rebellion. And I, I, li I like the characterization of Mon Mothma a lot. She's, like, very humble and quiet, but also very, like, no-nonsense. Like, when, not, like, they're attacked, she's the one who has to disconnect the ships from each other like she's always like she's very reserved and quiet and dignified but also whenever trouble's there she's she's you know ready to jump into action um and uh, uh, genevieve o'reilly who which is crazy because like genevieve o'reilly played mon mothma in deleted scenes for revenge of the sith and then she was brought back for rogue one and then voiced the character in, the, in this uh animated show as well i almost wish that the those scenes were able to or were, were kept in Revenge of the Sith just because it, it'd be cool to see to see her begin in, a, in the Clone Wars because I, I know we see her there and then to see her in Revenge and here and then Rogue One and, and A New Hope. It, it's just cool to be able to at this point have this much history with this character who only appeared in like one movie. Or sorry, not A New Hope, uh, Return of the Jedi. And I like that Thrawn instantly knows that Hera is going to choose the most difficult route uh, to escape from. Like he's able to, he's using her craftiness against her, and the flight through the uh, the star the uh, nebula or whatever is really tense because all the the ships are getting hotter and hotter, and then when they have the tie defenders um 
which are way better than wide wings. They're, they're, they're really scary. Um, but they, they, when they're chasing them through the uh, the asteroid, and now she's flying closer and closer to the uh, to the star, and you see the ships are heating up and pieces are flying off. It's like really intense. Yeah, there's another episode where you know they kind of have their big thing and and they don't hold back on it with the the animation. So flying through looks really cool, and then when they get out and they fire the the proton torpedoes, just that effect of like the lightning, like whatever it is just bursting through and latching on to whatever's out there and just completely destroying it. It looks really cool. It's like the nebula is a bubble and the, the shot like bursts it open, just sprays this hot plasma out on everything. It's very, very cool uh, visual. It ends with Mon Mothma giving a galaxy-wide transmission where she formally resigns from the Senate and calls for open unified rebellion against the Empire and I get lots of chills. And oh yeah, and then uh, as she does that, all of the, the various cells, from, uh, rebel cells from across the galaxy that uh Bail Organ has been working so tirelessly to build, kind of show up out of hyperspace as her speech finishes, and it's just, it's really, it feels really good. Yeah, that that last shot where we're sitting behind the ghost and we see this huge, like we see the hammerheads and the blockade runners, uh, and some of the other ships that we see, like it's like the same design that are escaping from Hoth in Empire Strikes Back. We see all of these different designs, and and I think this is the first time we've actually heard the term alliance used. And it makes sense with this episode. It, it really does feel... And that's one of the things I like about the show is that they, they weren't really rushing it. They're really organically building the rebellion. And now it does genuinely feel like a rebel alliance. So we see all of these different cells uniting under a leader. Yeah, moving very organically into Rogue One. All right, next episode is Double Agent Droid. is directed by Stuart Lee and written by Brent Friedman. Brent Friedman. In this one, Wedge, Antilles, AP-5, and Chopper infiltrate an Imperial base to steal codes. Uh, but while their Chopper is discovered by a surveillance ship and taken over, they escape. But AP-5 becomes increasingly convinced that Chopper has been hacked, but Wedge doesn't believe him. Once they return to the Ghost, Chopper decides to take over the ship, uh, trying to kill everybody. Eventually, they subdue him, and Hera sends an amplified signal back to the surveillance ship, destroying it and saving Chopper. Okay, first off, I hate this episode. I think this episode is kind of terrible. First, the, the the surveillance ship, and you have like the the guy the guy is voiced by Josh Gad, which is a really weird like role for Josh Gad. You, you'd think Josh Gad would do something much more extreme. This is Josh Gad. I did not realize. That. Yeah, the the guy with the, the small goat. Like he looks like somebody's dad. It's really weird. It's a really weird character, but like he's a kind of a low bot with that the 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 implants in his head. But like it's like it's like this '90s hacker movie. Where everyone's yep. typing and like talking to the screen. Oh, I can do this if I if I can reroute the whatever, whatever, and the auxiliary power and amplify the signal and just it's it's so cheesy. Like I love AP five when he's insulting a, a, a living person, but this whole episode is just AP five bickering with Chopper, and it's really irritating. It just kind of gets on my nerves, and it just goes on and on. There's so this so little going, and the the plot itself is so cheesy. It just. It really, really gets old fast for me. Yeah, so I don't hate this as much as you. I wouldn't even go so far as to say I hate it. Um, but it's definitely not among my favorites at all. Um, you know, at first, with the initial bickering, because I, I like AP and I've always liked Chopper. And so at first, with the bickering, it, like I'm kind of having fun with it. I think it's one of his... He's saying, you know, anything you can do, I can do better. <laughs> go back and forth with a no, you can't. Or, oh, gosh. Like, at first, I think it's funny. But then it plays out for like a minute too long. I'm like, okay, we, we got it. Um, and then 
it gets to the point to where, yes, I get it. Uh, AP has always been rough on Chopper and has always disliked him. Like, they, they bicker all the time. But it gets to a point to where he's presenting actual evidence and Wedge is just completely ignoring him and acting like there's absolutely nothing out of the ordinary with anything going on. And it's really frustrating to watch because we're supposed to look at Wedge as like a genuinely competent character. Um, and so that combined with the fact that I'm not a fan of the voice actor, I'm really like, okay, Wedge is genuinely getting on my nerves. And it only makes it worse when later on, whenever they're all back aboard Chopper Base, and something is pointed out that that Chopper was offered like Chopper offered a compliment, and they're like, "Whoa, that's different." And Wedge is like, "You know, come to think of it, he's been acting different this whole time." It's like, "Yes, that's what AP's been saying." If you weren't so obtuse and stupid, not to, I ended up getting really frustrated pretty frequently during this episode. Oh, it was kind of funny that Wedge feels kind of flattered that he has the mission, but it turns out they sent him along because no one wanted to listen to Chopper and AP5 bicker. Yeah, and you, like I said, there's still, there's moments, I don't completely hate it, there, there's little moments, sometimes the bickering is kind of funny, uh, and there was one visual that I thought was actually actually pretty hilarious, which is they're, they're disguised and they're on there and they're falling behind this little masteroid and Chopper just keeps intentionally like pushing it from behind, just like this <laughs> annoying little kid playing with an animal trying to agitate it it was just as this background stuff going on it was funny um and we get confirmation in this episode that people in star wars do indeed pee so there's that if you needed it yeah and that what what really pushes me over the edge into truly loathing this episode is at the end after they, they after they realize what chop that chopper is hacked and they stun him hera amplifies the signal back <laughs> to the surveillance ship and it explodes <laughs> it's like really doctor who level bs or it's like you know at the end of every episode he's able to to create some crazy science thing because science and science and yeah i amplify the signal on the ship blows up what does that mean like it's it's a, it's a radio signal how does that go back to the main reactor and blow it up and how do you how do you how do you send a signal strong enough to destroy an entire ship through Chopper and he's totally okay? It's like it's so stupid and just comes out of the blue and makes no sense and it's just like the worst kind of sci-fi. Yeah, talk about like a, an actual design flaw. I I have no idea how how it's even possible for. Like, if, if you're using some sort of signal to, to hijack a droid, the fact that it's even a possibility to, like, revert that signal and, like, you said, amplify it. Which what does that mean? Whoever, <laughs> like, nobody knows what any of this means. And then there's a moment where, like, maybe in another show this is funny. But, at, like, so I've, I'm already really kind of not having any of this episode. And at the end, whenever AP oh, is just out. I love this. So, I love it. It, it almost fixes the entire episode for it's me. funny to me like i genuinely like it in the moment but it's just so weird for star wars where he's just floating and he's like surrounded by these space birds and he starts singing a song it feels like, like a Disney it's, it's so crazy he just breaks into a musical and i, I don't even know what i'm watching but it's hilarious because it's ap5 and because it's a star wars robot floating in space surrounded by little jellyfish things and then he breaks out into singing about how he's he's found his place in the universe and then the the ghost comes to rescue he's like no i go away leave me alone 
This is just so insane and bizarre, but I love it. Yeah, I, I guess just because of how little I do enjoy the episode, <laughs> if something is so absurd that it becomes entertaining, I guess I'll latch on to it. So like I said, in the moment, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I think I was audibly laughing at what was happening. Um, so if anything, it, it made an otherwise completely forgettable episode memorable just for that. <laughs> yeah, the first Star Wars musical, and now I want one. Hey, I'm, I'm for Star Wars taking on whatever genre they want. Okay, so fortunately, though, now we get to move on to a much better episode with Twin Sons. This one was directed by Dave Filoni and written by Henry Gilroy and Dave Filoni. Alarmed at hearing Kenobi and Maul again through the destroyed holocrons, Ezra fears Kenobi is alive but in danger. With the attack on Lothal impending, Ezra is denied permission to fly to uh, Tatooine to assist Kenobi, but Ezra takes an A-wing and leaves anyway. With Chopper with him, Ezra lands on the planet but discovers it was initially a trap set by Maul but is able to escape from the Sand People. After passing out after wandering through the desert, Ezra is discovered by an older Obi-Wan Kenobi who tells him that it is Maul who lured him here and that he must return to the Rebellion, which is his place. After Ezra leaves, Kenobi is confronted by Maul who claims Kenobi is here to protect someone. Maul then attacks but is quickly killed. With his dying breath, Maul states that they will be avenged. Ezra tells the rest of the rebels that they don't have to worry about Maul anymore, as back on Tatooine, Kenobi watches a young Luke Skywalker from a distance. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of chills in this episode. Yeah. It opens with Maul kind of wandering alone in the Tatooine desert, just kind of looking for Kenobi and basically drifting into madness. But he still has a bit of the holocron um, that was destroyed, and so he's somehow able to call Ezra and stick it into Ezra's mind that Obi-Wan's in danger. And I love that he was, the whole time he's tricking that he is using Ezra, that Ezra thinks he's going to save Obi-Wan, but it's all just a trick from Maul to lure, to basically put Ezra out in the desert by himself alone and dying to make sure that Kenobi will come. Because, And then I love once we finally find Kenobi, Kenobi's like, yeah, I knew Maul was here. I wasn't going to find him. I was, was going to let him die in the desert. But I guess I got to do it now. So I just love the way that all the characters are playing each other. And then going to Obi-Wan, he's not voiced by uh, James Arnold Taylor. He's voiced by a Stephen Stanton, you know, Colonel Gascon and uh, Grand Moff Tarkin. And he's fantastic. Like, J- James Arnold Taylor has a very Ewan McGregor version of the character. But this, Stephen Stanton does a perfect Alec Guinness impression. And it's just so authoritative and quiet and kind and sweet and just everything Obi-Wan is in A New Hope. Yeah, his performance, like you said, there there are many chills to be had in this episode. And when he first starts speaking, that was one of them where I always thought it was so impressive that, you know, like Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher and, and even Harrison Ford, they were all up and coming actors. And, and sometimes the acting in A New Hope wasn't always Oscar worthy, but it, it kind of was with Alec Guinness there and, and the scene where you know he explains to to Luke that he knew his father and he talks about his past that that scene always really like stuck with me and you get so much emotion and you can feel so much of the history just through his vocal performance and somehow Stanton is completely able to capture that all here like he gets all of his manners the way he finishes words uh, the way he says certain concepts just everything it, it's it, it it really is almost a perfect impression and and stuff like that goes so far 
with convincing me that these animated, clearly computer-generated characters are the same live-action mm-hmm. characters that I know. Like, if you can get that voice right, it takes very little effort for me to convince myself that these obviously two different like, looking images are, are the same person. And I love that Maul is able to use the exact same tactic to draw out Obi-Wan's suffering. Like, he brings... Um, Ezra out of the desert and he's dying of thirst and but then he's even he, when that's not working fast enough he goes in like starts taunting Ezra through the forest and making him see see Maul all around and like just just trying to amplify Ezra's suffering to make sure that Obi-Wan senses it and comes to his rescue and even just uh talking about like the beginnings of the the episode when we first open on Tatooine with Maul wandering the animation there is really great like when we we zoom in and he's just covered in dust and you've got the dust particles fly, or the, the sand particles like flying through the air um and just his like his facial expression and movement and everything it it looks like a mall who's just been wandering for yeah. forever uh and and the same with Ezra like when he passes out in the sand or you know when he's just walking through it he's just coated in it and he's completely filthy and when he drops down, they're really able to like sell a sense of exhaustion on these characters. Mm-hmm. And what's so interesting is that with like, Ezra, it feels like Ezra kind of stumbled into a story that is that is not his. Like, because he finds Obi Wan, and Obi Wan's like, "Yeah, you're not supposed to be here. You need to leave." He puts him on the, on his beastie thing and sends Wan on his do back. Yeah. <laughs> which is yeah. awesome to see a do back again yeah because i actually really like their inclusion in the special edition it's like ezra it's like ezra creating a mistake in somebody else's story that now the the, the narrative kind of fo- turn, shifts focused back to obi-wan and maul and they have to finish this ancient story that's been going for 20 years it's it's such a it's such a weird structure but it feels so there's something there's something really powerful about just the, it's we're stepping into something very old and ancient that, that that we can't even like Ezra can't even truly touch because it's so it's so far it's so much bigger than he is. And one of the things that I, that it really made me think about was how attuned to the Force, like in the will of the Force, that Obi Wan is. You know, because in A New Hope, it's almost the same situation. He just found uh, found Luke, and yeah, yeah, he had you know more cues. The fact that R two is looking for him, and and the fact that he obviously knows that that Luke is the chosen one, but. Whenever he finds him, he takes it as a sign as, you know, this is this is now my time to act. This is the time to set an emotion what I've been waiting for. And when Ezra shows up, it's, you know, you aren't supposed to be here. And instantly he sets him on his way. Uh, and one of the things that's just I find really crazy about the episode is in terms of the events that actually happen, there's not a whole lot of actual events in this episode. You know, Maul, Maul gets Ezra on Tatooine. And, you know, that that's the opening scene. And almost instantly, Ezra passes out and wakes up with Obi-Wan. And Obi-Wan fights Maul, and Ezra's back back home saying that things are, are fine. It, it's so little happening. And yet, because of the history of all of these characters, it feels like we just we got so much closure. We got so much new additions. And the way it's able to point forward, you know, it's the same length amount of, like, it's the same amount of time, but so few things. But these things are carries such a, a genuine weight and impact with them it's really impressive yes it's like this ancient rift in the nature of the galaxy that should have been defeated long ago is finally put to rest like mauls this crazy wild card that's just been just just causing death and destruction for 20 years and finally it's 
it's put down the way it should have been that day on Naboo. Then going uh, going into this confrontation between Maul and Obi Wan, Dave Filoni is a good director. You know that, James? I, I've I've noticed that. Yeah, just this episode where you have Maul is like, "Why are you here? What are you doing here?" And like that, he's like slowly, I guess, probably through the Force, kind of in, intuiting what he's doing. You know, you're protecting something. No, someone. And on that word, Obi Wan ignites his lightsaber. And they just kind of stand off against each other. They're kind of shifting through positions. And Obi-Wan first goes into that kind of really weird outlandish position that he used against uh, Grievous. It's like they slowly kind of go through several different, like for, he does that. He, he first does his like his favorite position and then Maul shifts and then he shifts kind of to the, to the ready stance and Maul shifts to that. And then he goes into uh, Qui- the, the pose Qui-Gon was in with the, with the lightsaber kind of held it next to his head or shoulder height. And then Maul like recognizes that, and then goes it goes in and tries to use the exact same move where he hits up uh, where he hit Qui Gon in the face with the hilt, but but uh, it was actually Obi Wan is drawing him in. He cuts down through it and kills him. With, it's like they go through like three three strikes and then he kills Maul, and just everything stops, and it, it's so crazy. I didn't even put together the Qui Gon stance and trying to hit him in the head. That that raises the scene to another level for me. I I never noticed that. Yeah, it's because like, each one goes through multiple uh, Jedi forms, and then he goes back goes to that position, and you see like a light of recognition in Maul's eyes, and then he does the same thing. He cuts down, and it's like it's so crazy because pretty amazing, and it has all that thematic way because you have Maul, who is this character who has never been able to get over being cut in half on Naboo. Everything, his entire life has been shaped around getting vengeance and and he's 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 still pretty much the exact same person. Whereas Obi-Wan is like so far beyond that. Like it's it's not even an issue for him. And he's able to to use that the fact that he has grown and Maul has not to kill him. And I love that it's like it's like a 30 second scene where each one it's like a kind of the good, the bad, and the ugly standoff where it's just the camera sh- cutting back and forth between their faces, the music slowly building, and this one burst of action and it's over. And then they're kind of like sitting together and Maul is dying. He's like, you know, is he the chosen one? And he says, he is. He will avenge us. And they're, it's like they're almost like they're friends again at the end. And he kind of closes his eyes. It's it's so, so crazy seeing this story come to a head and resolve. And at the first time I saw it, there was like a, ha- a bit of me that was disappointed that we didn't get a cooler fight, but it's the same for the, like the last Jedi people are mad that we didn't get Luke to see Luke fight Kylo but it's like yeah a fight would have been cool but we're getting story and that's a lot better um it's just what this the way this standoff goes and what it means to these characters is so much more powerful than a fight could ever be yeah I, I remember like that's what I have down here just in the notes is thinking by all accounts I should walk away from this with disappointment the, like, the fight is like three seconds long but it's just amazing the way it all happens and first i i don't think really extending it would make it work considering what what obi-wan's move was you know it, it now that i especially now that i know that he was using qui-gon stance to try to get maul to recreate what he did you know to, you had to have him capitalize right there on that moment um and he kind of d- denied Maul the satisfaction of this of this triumphant duel, but what really makes the scene to me is just those last words exchanged between them, where it's it's almost like Maul 
finally, like, as he dies, comes the realization of maybe something he always knew. It's Obi-Wan, he knew he was never going to be able to get to Palpatine. His last confrontation with him in Clone Wars proved that. There's, there's just no besting him physically. And so, obviously, the, the best thing for him to do then was just to go after Kenobi, because in his mind, they're still an equal match. But then as he dies, he realizes that, you know, it, the person to hate was always Palpatine. You know, it's 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 a much more powerful version of Ezra explaining to Rex and uh, and Kalani the droid that that neither of them could have been victorious because it's the Empire that won, and for Maul to just say, you know, we will be avenged. We were both wronged by the same individual, and it's it's filled me with rage and it's put you in exile. But now that I know that you're protecting the chosen one, there will be justice, and and our lives will be avenged. And I was like, it's such a powerful scene. And it's like they're both realizing that they're kind of relics of an older story. Like Luke is what matters now. Luke is the future. They're both these kind of them them and their fight with each other is this ancient history that's kind of that doesn't belong in this world anymore. Yeah, and with that in mind, this is this might be, you know, the most perfect glue between the two trilogies. You know, where We've got classic Obi-Wan uh, on Tatooine watching Luke but, and we have Maul here and we like the entire history resting on on that duel in, in the very first one chronologically with Phantom Menace. It's bringing all of these different, you know, stories running through this this series and it's like the perfect point that really unites both stories and almost, like you said, like thematically passes passes the the baton of importance and story from from one story to the next acknowledging that this is over you know it's it's not about this anymore obi-wan like obi-wan saying i'm not the star anymore yeah and that shot of where yeah, obi-wan is watching luke and they have the exact same uh recording of aunt Beru calling luke luke and from from a new hope but also i like how when ezra goes back to base he he just apologizes for leaving like that and you you do sense is like there's been a lot of growth in this character, especially like looking back to who he was in, in season four. There's so much more humility and maturity now in him. Yeah, and you know, it it was annoying, you know, in season one when it felt like every episode had to end with a level of optimism. But right here, it feels earned, where he's like, "Yeah, I tried to leave, and I shouldn't have, but I think things are going to be okay now. I think things are as they should be." Mm-hmm. And it just it feels right, especially when we cut from that to that shot of him seeing Luke. And then instead of going into the typical Rebels fanfare, just closing out with John Williams theme when Luke sees the, the twin yeah. sons. Yeah, so I mean, I'm, honestly, I'm just getting goosebumps thinking about it. But that was one of the most memorable endings to any episode. It's just it the, what, the way it knows what's important, how it knows how to foreshadow, you know, still acknowledging that ultimately all of this is leading up to the importance of Luke, but still not undermining the importance of the rebels in the here and now. It's just so well done. Yeah. So we are at the two-part finale. It is Zero Hour. It is directed by Justin Ridge. Uh, Part one is written by Stephen Melching, and part two is written by Henry Gilroy and Matt Mishnovetz. So we have the rebels are gathering their forces for their strike on the Defender, the TIE Defender factory on Lothal. Uh, but Callus discovers that Thrawn knows the location of the rebels on Adalon, and he tries to warn the rebels, but he's discovered and captured by Thrawn. 
The rebels attempt to escape, but the Imperial fleet arrives, forcing them back to ground. They attack the blockade to give Ezra a chance to escape to seek help from Sabine on Mandalore. They succeed, uh, but Sato gives his life on the carrier to take down Constantine on the interdictor to give uh, Ezra a chance to escape. Meanwhile, Kanan goes to the Bandu to try and get some help, but the Bandu is having none of it. The Mandalorians do not want to help, but when Sabine says she's going to go anyway, her mother supplies her with a few ships. Thrawn launches a, gr a ground invasion that quickly overruns the rebels' meager defenses and surrounds the survivors. However, the Mandalorians arrive and attack the remaining interdictor. Uh, the Bandu, infuriated by Kanan's insults, arrives in a thunderstorm and attacks both Imperials and rebels, giving them a chance to escape. The interdictor is destroyed and Callus manages to escape in a, in a pod and is picked up by Hera. Thrawn shoots down the Bendu, but he vanishes as Thrawn tries to deliver the killing blow. The few remaining rebels are able to escape into hyperspace and head for Yavin. Yeah, a lot happens over the course of these two episodes. On my first watch through, I was kind of getting annoyed by the fact that Thrawn was constantly letting the rebels go and letting them win. But you realize that he was actually watching the tactics and, and allowing them to think they're winning each of those engagements, but he could have won himself if he wanted to. And he was basically giving them the incentive to say, all right, we're winning. We can do this. Let's gather a bit more and more forces. So that he finally gathered all the rebels in one spot and then he was going to come in and crush them. And just the way this episode, these two episodes are structured, like every time the rebels have a hint of hope, Thrawn is on top of it and just comes crushing down. Does this, it's so oppressive and you just, realize just how much malevolence there truly is behind Thrawn. He is just going to destroy everyone. No one is going to survive. This is the end of the rebellion. And every plan they have, he's ahead of them. It's it's legitimately scary. Yeah. One of the things I noted early on in the first episode is how this almost feels like everything beforehand were the first two acts of a film and this last two-parter is it's the third act. It's the final the final action set piece of, of the film and the the sense of weight and stakes just in the opening minutes almost feel like tangible. It's, it's crazy how how invested I felt in the conflict of this two-parter just right off the bat. It's super cool introducing General Dodonna now, who we obviously see uh, in A New Hope. So it, it's really, and you know, considering we, we've had uh, Mon Mothma kind of unite the alliance, this is really when it feels like, you know, this is an actual alliance, an actual army that has the potential to make a dent. Um, and if, you know, the learning that uh, that Thrawn has located their base, it makes all of this this sense of, of we can do it. You know, we have the power all the more, like, depressing, uh, considering this entire time we're kind of clued into what's actually going to happen. And there's almost a sense there's points in the episode where it almost just feels like they've reached the point of despair. Um, and, and it kind of reminds me of, of return of the King and that last battle of Pelennor fields, how often, you know, there, there's so many different points where you think you're winning and then the Mumik will show up and then you think you're winning and then the witch King shows up and like, it's constantly shifting. And that's what this felt like on a smaller scale where it's just, like you said, every time you think you've got, You've got this side one. Thrawn does this, and he's he's constantly countering everything, and 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 the fact that he has let them win, you know, within the context of each episode, he's always kind of one step ahead. But then you learn that even outside the entire season, he's always been a step ahead. He's always been playing the long game, and it's all been leading to this moment, filling them with a false sense of confidence, using them 
uh, to learn their like the location of their own base. Everything has fallen into place exactly where he wanted. And one of my favorite things about what they do here is that they don't win because they, in, in a way, they outsmarted him. But they didn't win because they outfought him. They won because of a third party that they were able to take advantage of beforehand. Like, without that, Thrawn wins. It, it wasn't just... It wasn't Ezra in the last minute thing. Like, he'll never think this. You know, like, let's unite and do this. It's the last thing we'll see coming. They didn't beat him tactically or strategically. They just got... It's it's one of the few cases... Because it's not exactly lucky. Um, because Kanan has been fostering a relationship. But it really is just... They happened to know the right guy. And they were, ba like, able to escape with the skin of their teeth. And it doesn't undermine... It doesn't undermine the intellect and the skill of Thrawn at all. Yeah, Thrawn's plan was flawless, but it failed because of the human stupidity of Constantine and then the Bendu, which obviously no one could could calculate. And that that's my favorite, uh, that wording right there. He did not lose because of flaw and calculation. You know, there, there, was, an, there was something that he never could have anticipated because otherwise everything he did was the right thing. Yeah. And the, the scene where Sato takes the cru the uh, the cruiser and um, Constantine gets up too big for his britches and tries to go after her. And then Constantine rams in. is like he pulls a Haldo. And it's this amazing shot where the uh, the carrier basically splits the uh, the interdictor in two right down the center. And it's, just, it's awesome. Yeah, the visuals are is amazing. And I think this marks the first time there's like even a hint of concern or worry from Thrawn where he says, you know, well, I, I don't remember the exact lines, but he makes some, some sort of comment. Like, you know, if, if Constantine's stupidity hasn't compromised my plan, like he seems genuinely worried that a wrench was thrown into his plan. And he's, he's going to actually have to start thinking in, not that he's never, you know, thought had to, you know, think in the moment, but he's having to alterate or alter this, perfect plan that he's come up with um just because of these constantly shifting events around him mm -hmm. and he, he he knew that was a possibility so he brought two interdictors like he he could have survived constantine's stupidity it was it was the like the the unknowable force that defeated him yeah, but even before um the battle like just in the the early like setting the stage for this this two-part episode um i love his when, it, when he finds Kallus, it just feels so defeating and demoralizing the scene which he he confronts him and is able to subdue him and he sends that message to the rebellion which is he, you know they think hair you know hair assumes he's offering a chance for surrender and this is where you know we do find out that maybe thrawn is a little bit vindictive and he is there is a certain level of almost cruelty within him where he he messaged he messages them solely to tell them i am going to destroy you it was yeah. me, like, your destruction came at my hands, not just physically, but everything this ha like everything that has happened has happened the way I, w I wanted it to, and I wanted you to know that it was because of me. <laughs> and then he just cancels it. It's such a haunting scene. Yeah. And just the way, like, the, there's so many movements in the battle where they're first forced to ground, and they kind of try to, they do that desperate attack where all, like they lose a bunch of ships but Ezra escapes and then they're forced back to ground and then there's the bombardment which is amazing where we 
we kind of view it from the ground and all the ships, all the Imperial ships are bombarding the shield that they got way back in uh, Ghost of Geonosis. And just viewing it from the inside as all the, the laser blasts are coming out. It's really gorgeous visual. Yeah, Kanan on his speeder, like constantly having to dodge all of these explosions around him. It, it feels dangerous. Mm-hmm. And then they go for the ground invasion. And like they they sent they sent a first wave of ATSTs and the uh, rebels are able to blow them up. It's like yeah, cheer moment. And it's like okay, you revealed your meager defenses. Now here comes the real attack. It's like everything is going down. And like there's kind of this running battle with the uh, ATATs and fighting through the caves. It's re- it's just very so intense. And then when they finally get to where they're surrounded, and uh, Thrawn basically says he's gonna kill all of Hera's people one by one around her until she herself formally surrenders to him. Like another evidence of his vindictiveness. And then the Bendu shows up. Uh, okay, but going back to the scene where Kanan calls him a coward and he's like, you, you do not call me coward, Kanan Jarrus. And he just, his eyes start glowing, his voice starts booming, he just disappears up into a thunderstorm. Is Kanan's speech there almost reminds me of, uh, of Sam's uh, and Two Towers at the Stone Window where he's just talking about, you know, you know, uh, the Bendu is thinking of all these reasons to not get involved, and perhaps this is just the will of the Force. And you know, what's the worth in fighting this? And Kane is kind of essentially, you know, using the sentiment that this is a situation that is worth fighting for. It is worth taking up arms for. Um, so that's that's where my mind went there. Mm-hmm. And then the Bendu comes out. It's just two eyes in the clouds and. Uh, just like, I am the light, I am the dark, I am the Bendu. And just starts raining death on uh, rebels and Imperials alike. And I love that he doesn't actually join the fight. He's just mad and he's going to kill everybody. Um, and then when they, they get onto the ghost and then he comes after, he's like, Kanan Jarrus! And he, the cloud's like racing above the ghost and he actually hits the ghost. He would have killed them if it wasn't for their shield. But it's like, I love that he's... Like, you know, I, I came to like him, and I love that they didn't just make him a good guy. He is something so far beyond this petty conflict. I was about to say, that was, you know, they had the danger of, of again, really hurting that, like, the distinction between trying to balance the light and the dark while also not equating light with good. And, uh, and you know, if you had this character who is all about balance, be convinced by this Jedi Knight and and join join the rebellion in defeating the empire you you undo all of that and you just com- continue to equate light with good and the fact that that's always always going to be the way but the fact that they, they don't do that and you you actually see him this character that we like you see him like use lightning to strike down re- like rebel ships it's just like he's he's not there to join any specific fight. He's just there to cause as much damage and to get them off his planet. Mm-hmm. And uh, Thrawn like thinks he can. He's found a way to like salvage something, and he has them shoot the Bendu down out of the clouds. But then when he goes to confront him, Bendu's like, "I see your defeat." And Thrawn's like, "Okay, whatever." He goes to shoot him, and he vanishes, and this laughs from all around him. And you see it for like the first time, like true fear in Thrawn's eyes. Like this is something he just cannot understand. Like he, everything you know, natural and logical, he's he will always be the best at. But the Force is something he he just cannot comprehend. It. You can see just how disturbed he is by all of this. 
I feel like there's so many reasons that I shouldn't really like the way this is visually portrayed. Where it's <laughs> you got the Bendu up in the in the sky, almost like Mufasa, you know, just taking shape in the clouds and just raining. Although I guess now um, we have bringing down lightning as a legitimate force power with with the Last Jedi, but uh, just everything it feels so fantastical. Uh, but it just it works just because of how well it's portrayed and. And the weight of that scene feels so earned. Like this is, this is what Kanan's relationship with him has all been, been leading to, and it doesn't undermine what they've been doing with it this whole time. And that shot of, uh, of the Bendu falling from the sky like a meteor just looks so cool. Yeah, and uh, also uh, we uh, finish up uh, Callus's arc. I love how he taunts Price until she finally decides to throw tells her the guards to throw him out the airlock. But as they get in the elevator, there's a close-up on his face and he smiles and the door closes on it. And then next, and then it goes to commercial break, whatever, next scene, the door opens, he's just standing there, they're both knocked out. I love that too, yeah. I, I was kind of hoping for that, whenever he first get, uh, went in, I was hoping that the next time, like when it opens up, that we don't even see the fight, we just see him kind of walk out with the two bodies on the floor. I think one of my one of the moments I really love with Callus is when he's in the escape pod and you almost feel like he's he's starting to to wonder, you know, ha, has this all been for nothing? Is are, are the rebels what what they've made themselves out to be? And when you see them approach him, he has a, a like a smile over his face, like a, a realization that this is the kind of group that I, this person with this genuine sense of honor and and duty, am going to feel at home with, and that like they are everything that they've that they've shown themselves to be. And it's just like, it's such a great moment to see for the character uh, to, to see this, you know, considering, you know, how early on it was revealed that he was fulcrum. It's great to see this finally realized with, with him completely like joining the rebellion. And then you have that moment with him talking to Kanan where, you know, he thanks him for coming back for him. Yeah. So, absolutely fantastic finale all right so that was season three um how do you very quickly we're running crazy long but how do you feel this episode compares to season one and two or not this episode the season compares to season one and two so i would say it's i would say it's comparable with season two i think the only reason i i don't prefer this season is because i think in the first half there are a couple episodes that feel just a bit isolated and and too self-contained um, and then there's a couple of those that we we both just dislike. Um, you know, season one felt to be about, you know, trying to make it as your own little thing. Season two is about trying to adapt as as part one small part of a larger thing. And, and I feel like this season, like the first part of the season didn't really have that one direction. Um, that one thing that this is about. Probably uh, learn your place. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like it that came through a little bit later in the season, but once the season hit its stride, it it became, you know, arguably the best of of the series. And, and like I said, this finale, the, the sense of stakes um, by the end of this is is incredible, and you know, it's peppered with great stuff from all. With you know the the episode on Dathomir is really great in its own right, and then the twin sons is just such an amazing moment in star wars history and yeah it's it's a very very strong i'm i might put it just a tad above season two but those two are, are pretty comparable um and i think both are a good bit better than the first season yeah i i, I 
there's nothing in this season that's quite up there with the Twilight of the Apprentice. However, I think this 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 season felt a lot more consistent to me. Like even the filler episodes, with the with the exception of like the uh, the hijacked droid one, the filler episodes felt like they had more purpose and reason to exist. Like, and so I just it it felt more consistent, uh, consistent in quality overall. And then when it's when it's good, it's really great. Uh, so and just it's amazing to finally see the the rebellion that we know in A New Hope start to really take shape it's not just cells anymore and very quickly what are your top five episodes from this season uh so i'm not gonna put it in any specific order um and i know obviously that this two-parter would be there um twin sons uh would be there uh trials of the dark saber so so that's three and then visions and voices just you know two fantastic mall episodes and then probably Legacy of Mandalore. You know, it wasn't quite as good as Trials of the Dark Saber, but I thought it, it took everything that it did well with Sabine and and continued that through the story. And so, yeah, this is top five really great episodes. And there are some other really good ones that I just wasn't even able to mention. Yeah, it's kind of a testament to how good this season was that I couldn't fit all in the top five. So I have to have two honorable mentions for uh, Visions and Voices and Through Imperial Eyes. And then my top five are Steps into Shadow, Trials of the Dark Saber, Legacy of Mandalore, Twin Sons, and then the Zero Hour two-parter. Oh man! I, okay, well, add add through Imperial Eyes is my honorable, maybe even my top five. I don't know. I I really love that one. I love how mature it felt that it was willing to just, you know, exist as a as a thriller. All right. Um. So. <laughs> long episode um so again i'd like to ask you guys uh to please take a moment to go and give us a rating and review on itunes and if you want to like us on facebook we're there as franchise fatigue podcast and if you want to follow us on twitter we are there at franchised pod and if you want to find our other episodes you can go to franchise fatigue and you can also listen to us at podbean at franchise fatigue podcast.podbean.com and where can people follow you james um, so primarily on uh, Letterboxd, I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J L H A M R I, and I do try to keep that updated uh, fairly frequently with uh, with reviews and just star ratings of what I've seen most recently. Um, and the two of us are uh, both admin at a Facebook group called Star Wars Fans Who Actually Like Star Wars. Uh, if you want to talk about Star Wars but talk about it positively and uh, kind of grown tired of, of all of the bitterness that's kind of taken over some portions of the fandom. Um, we definitely like talking about the, the lore of Star Wars and, uh, and the, the positive things we find from the whole, the whole series. Um, so definitely feel free to join that. I am also on Letterboxd. I am there as Gabriel Green. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am there as Gabe A. Green. All right. So uh, next week, we'll finally be finishing up Rebels uh, with season four. This is uh, 14 episodes, and if all goes according to plan, we will be joined by again by Blaine Grimes uh, from Home One Radio. And uh, I have a lot of strong feelings <laughs> about that season. It's going to be a really crazy discussion. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I guess I have to close out. This this is weird. Um, so what was your line? Uh, so until next week, we will see you in season four. I see your defeat, like many arms surrounding you in a cold embrace. <laughs> <laughs>